passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. When Ryan's when it's time to begin, it's on the rewind around with John Pollock and waiting the 18 that makes sense of these things we see in the ring every week on TV. It's rewind around for Monday night, download a Tuesday morning from the post wrestling site. It's rewind around for Monday night on USA now on the John and Wade take the mic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Rewind a Raw. It's John Pollock here alongside waiting. And what an intense episode of Raw that we are going to be breaking down. Heads were kicked. We had cars flipped. Glass doors shattered by cinder blocks. The lights are still flickering. And dude took a spinning wheel kick and is still out cold from Raw Underground. What a Raw this was. Oh, they're all eventful. I mean, that's why we can't change the channel. You got to stay for all three hours. 10 p.m. Unfortunately, if you had been following the commercials all night, 10 p.m., 10 p.m., like 9.54, we went to Raw Underground. They they beat themselves to the punch. Raw Underground was really contained this week. It was contained to like, I don't know, like two segments, really? It was very brief tonight, and I wonder, next week will be the test. Have they, I mean, I think that tonight's number is going to influence that, but next Monday, is it going to be a significant amount of raw? Because I will liken this to our other intense angle tonight is that what's better than one kendo stick shot that's really effective? Eight kendo sticks all at once, and we just nail people over the head with it. That could be the third hour of raw next week where we get raw underground for 50 minutes. So I'd like to know in storyline, like, how long this Shane McMahon Raw Underground operation like opens for? Does it just open for these like twenty minutes? Gather around, everybody. We're gonna open the doors. All right, get out of here. It's twenty minutes later. 
Or does it run the whole thing? Or I mean, it must start at 10, right? 24-7. We're just a fly on the wall for a couple highlights. They're like the elves working in the North Pole year-round. You don't just focus on, on, on Christmas. I mean, they're, they're busy at work all, all year-round in their little, their little cave that uh, Big Jordan is guarding outside. Wow, that long? Okay. We will get into all of Raw. Lots to dissect from that particular show. Did you have a fine weekend? I had a pretty good weekend. Yeah, not bad. Yeah. Um, had uh, some family over for an outdoor barbecue. That was nice. Okay. Um, I watched the Wu-Tang documentary on uh, Crave. With your family? Uh, no. Oh. No, they did not partake. This was more of a solo thing. But uh, yeah, I had a great weekend. You? Pretty good. I watched Rocky. Uh, we will be getting into that on Tuesday night. Have you started Rocky yet, Way? Um, no. I've already seen the movie, though, and it's like, I've got time. Well, this is not the uh, the Noah Tokyo Dome show of 2005, so it's uh, much much easier, it's, it's just in terms of lengthwise, not not as daunting a task. It's still a two-hour film, but, I mean, it's uh, it's not really that intimidating to me. It doesn't have to be two hours, but it is Ooh. technically two hours. Hey, did you hear that Netflix is now adding uh, speed controls? I was alerted by many, many people way that they were inc- that they have introduced this or are going to be introducing this. I don't know if they've actually done it yet. And will you be using it? Like, do you use these types of things when when you're watching something like for fun? So nine times out of ten, when I'm watching something on Netflix, it's it's with my wife, and she has banned me from ever being able to watch anything at more than the normal speed. So hmm. I, I don't know how much, uh, unless if I'm watching on my own, maybe. Interesting. Okay. I think I probably will. Yeah. Do you think you will delve into this? Like, you think I'm a weirdo now, but six months from now, you might see the light and be like, Pollock, you were ahead of the curve big time on this one. Uh, you know, some, it, it's certainly like I, I love the, the feature. I love it for YouTube, especially when I'm trying to like just, you know, learn an instructional, like how mm-hmm. to, how to, I don't know, how to chop lettuce. <laughs> like, if I'm watching a video about how to chop lettuce, I don't need to, I don't need you to explain every single detail in your normal speaking. I I can do that in two times the speed, and I'm happy. Now, how often am I going to watch a video like that on Netflix? Typically, if I'm watching Netflix, I'm sitting down to relax. I want to enjoy, you know, every second of the piece of art that the person has, you know, uh, the, the the creator has intended for me to, uh, I don't know, um, take in at, at at whatever speed that they intended. Um, but then there are some shows that I start and I just like, I don't have the patience to sit through all 10 episodes, but I just want to know the ending because I watched the pilot. You've got me curious. Now I just don't give a shit about all the stuff in the middle. I just want to know the end. So, uh, in those situations, I could see this coming in handy. Just breeze through the rest of these seasons. Like, you know, you know what I mean, right, John? Like some of these shows are like the premise is really good. They really got you hooked in for this mystery but you just don't enjoy it. Like whether it just be the acting or the world or just like the stress, I just sometimes don't enjoy it, but I care enough to know the finish. So in those situations, I I could see myself doing that. Well, I'm a completionist like you. I start a series. I'm not, I got to get through it. And sometimes it can be painful to get through. It's much like sitting down and reading a book. Like if I don't finish that book, it's just lingering and it will be 
just sitting there and I know that I've got to I got to just get through these last 200 pages even if I don't really care for the book. I've got to finish it. It's just like a mark against my uh my soul if I don't finish it. Yeah, I can understand. I mean, if you can only do two times speed reading. Right? I I've become a pretty good speed reader. Really? Okay. So you can read, but like your speed reading is just your normal speed. It is, but I feel that uh, since I have undergone the, my my self imposed book challenge this year, I have I have literally like been keeping track of how long it's taken me to read, and it's incredible the rate of which I can go through some of these books now. Wow, superpower! It's what I've got: dates and uh, reading. So there you go, folks. My resume is looking pretty pretty stealth. Uh, let's go and chat about some news items. We've we've got a lot of stuff to talk about, and then we'll preview the week ahead. It's always a always a fun time. Off the top, way UFC 252. Where are you at right now? A yes or a no or a maybe for watching this? At least the main event. Uh, it's a maybe, maybe, yeah. Okay. Kamala passed away over the weekend. This was uh, I, I thought that this got quite a lot of coverage. This is a character that I think many people very familiar with, and someone who. God, when you dive into his career, which I have done quite a lot of over the last 24 hours, I mean, he was someone that went to so many territories and places that you may not even be familiar with that he went to, like early in his career, went to Mexico and would return there uh, very early on, went over to Germany, went to uh, England uh, for for Dale Martin's joint promotions, um, did like a tour of Africa and then hit pretty much every meaningful territory in the United States, uh, coming up to Montreal and Canada, three big stints with the WWF throughout his career. But when you think of Kamala way, first of all, a character that would not see the light of day in 2020. And I think you could even make an argument that at the time it was fully fleshed out in 1982, there would have been some backlash to this portrayal that he was very aware of and believed that, you know, I was a guy playing a role, but understood that in a lot of territories, and this guy grew up, this guy was born to sharecroppers and grew up in the 50s and 60s in Mississippi. So this was someone that was exposed to a lot of racism that extended to his professional wrestling days and understood that there was a fan base out there that was racist and understood that the promoters were somewhat playing to those stereotypes and... Had a very, you know, he understood what this character was. He was not naive to it. But, I mean, you look at this. If you were not someone that grew up a wrestling fan and you're just watching or studying this character, it's a pretty jarring one in 2020. Oh, certainly, yeah. And, and you know, hearing Kamala's name be brought back up into sort of like the, the I don't know, uh, news cycle uh, and just, you know, be being a part of regular conversation really like puts it into a different context in 2020 um i think for so long you know like most wrestling fans we just kind of accept gimmicks like these as you know the norm in professional wrestling people uh typically you know people of color will portray a stereotypical character um you know at a time when like wrestling i think was very much like created based off of tropes and uh that could either be um you know, uh, positive or negative. And in the case of people of color, that typically has been negative. It's something that 
I would like to say that we've advanced far beyond at this point, but there's certainly <laughs> on this episode of Raw uh, plenty of examples that um, still, you know, um, carry on that trend. Uh, but, you know, seeing something like Kamala uh, be brought up in the bet news again, certainly I think will introduce some discussion about mm, what have we been exposing ourselves to as fans of professional wrestling throughout all these years and how has it affected our perceptions of, you know, what, how people of color, uh, are portrayed. Um, so, you know, regardless of all that, the person performing the character, I've always felt did a tremendous, tremendous job. Um, and I don't think there were too many people who could have pulled off like James Harris. I mean, he was not a great wrestler, but this was a character that by its very creation was a guy that had never wrestled. Like he was, when this was fully formed in Memphis, Jerry Lawler's instructions were, I don't want you to do a thing that resembles a wrestling hold. Like you are like, for lack of a better term, this guy was portrayed as a cannibal, as a savage from the jungle of Uganda that has been, has been uh, brought over and dropped into Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a character that I have to say is quite, it's quite amazing how long it endured, you know, yes. from, from the eighties where I'm sure it really fit perfectly with sort of the wrestling at the time, but even all the way up until, uh, I don't know, the nineties and even in, in some circles in the two thousands, making like brief stints here and there. Uh, it's a character that for some reason, like always managed to find a fit in some form of, of professional wrestling. Yeah. You really hit the nail on the head that, here was a character that I think the key to Kamala was that he could go to all of these territories and he would come in and he would immediately draw business. Um, you, you can look at, you know, the, the Kamala character was something that when he was over in England, he went on this tour of Africa. And when he came back from there, that's when he first started experimenting with, with face paint. And you kind of saw the, the, uh, first kind of hints of this character that he had in mind. And he he bounced it off of uh, Frankie Kane, who was a, a booker in Mississippi at the time. And then he ended up getting hired in Memphis. And that's where they kind of fully fleshed it out. Lawler did the the artwork on his on his face. They shot that uh, that introductory video in Jerry Jarrett's backyard. And then they brought him in and they immediately it's it's a very interesting lesson on bringing in a monster and how to book this guy who was you know not a great wrestler this was you know a heavy attraction but he was brought in he beats Jerry Lawler right out of the gate and just through these vignettes that they had run for him they drew well for the mystique of who is this Kamala? And this is coming at a time Jerry Lawler's fresh off of the Andy Kaufman program. So this is what they're following at the time. He wins the Southern heavyweight title and then Kamala go, starts going through all of the baby faces and they're just building towards Lawler getting that rematch and they would do the rematch and Kamala would, would keep the title. And then they built up to like they were the thing that's so impressive in Memphis is that they're running at the Mid South Coliseum every Monday night. So it's not like you're going to all different parts to draw. You're going to the same city every Monday night. And they did like three straight weeks of over 10,000 people. And Lawler won the title back in, in mid August. And that was kind of it. Like once Kamala lost, 
like the the luster was somewhat diminished and that would be a theme throughout his career that then he'd move down the card and invariably his pay would go down he would get upset about his pay and then he'd ultimately leave the leave the territory and that was sort of he was standing up for himself feeling he was underpaid but at the same time by the time his pay got to that point the promoters had kind of gotten their their most out of him and it was probably much like like a booking of an Andre was it was time to move on to another territory and after Memphis he went to mid south he went to world class and had very good runs in all of these territories his first time in WWF that's where you know he had first worked with Andre in mid south and you've probably seen the the video clip circulating where he body slams Andre and then they take that feud into the WWF in 84 would leave would leave there again with uh, issues issues with pay, and then he would bounce around. He came back, and in 1986 into 1987, this was his big run with Hulk Hogan, and they did outstanding business together. They they headlined three shows here at Maple Leaf Gardens within seven weeks. They drew big houses at Madison Square Garden, at the Rosemont Horizon, and uh, the Tacoma Dome. They drew over twenty thousand people in early January, like they did significant business together and would be his his biggest spotlight of a run with the WWF. So in that whole build-up to WrestleMania 3, it was Hogan working a lot with Kamala. Uh, but Kamala doesn't get booked on that WrestleMania at the Pontiac Silverdome. He leaves again and then had what younger fans will probably remember was his last WWF run. And that's where he comes back in 92. He does the program with The Undertaker and a famous story at the time that Kamala has told over and over again is that the SummerSlam at Wembley Stadium, he got paid $13,000 for that match with The Undertaker. And they were like third or fourth match on the card. And he had always claimed that he had seen in Pat Patterson's like like booking uh, sheets that The Undertaker got paid half a million dollars for that same match, which I have a really hard time believing that, that Taker got anywhere close to that for SummerSlam 92, given what that show drew and where they were on the card. But he has said that story over and over again. Um, they eventually turn him babyface. He's paired with uh, Reverend Slick. And then that would end around the end of 93. Uh, he went for a time in, for a couple of months to WCW in the middle of 95. And then, you know, from 2001, he does the gimmick battle Royal and would just pop up every now and then on WWE for cameos. Was a very well-remembered character. Like a very distinct look. Um, always one of my favorite themes was Kamala's in the WWF. And then, you know, he had this whole resurgence in the 2000s where he got to do these novelty indie spots. Including a very interesting match with Brian Danielson. When Danielson was ROH champion. Uh, and wrestled as late as 2010. But when you look at him, like here was a guy that drew very well in a lot of territories that he went to and the biggest ones I would say like it was a very impressive run he had in Memphis but then when Hulk Hogan was at his hottest like Kamala was a big opponent for for Hogan few can say they wrestled Hulk Hogan the Undertaker Jerry Lawler and Brian Danielson um yeah uh, a, a very long-lasting very unique career yeah and you know he's it's just been very sad. Like he was diagnosed with diabetes years and years ago. I think he first was told about it in around 92. And, you know, it ultimately got so bad that both of the, the lower portion of the, both legs 
needed to be amputated and he had had uh, significant health problems. And then we found out uh, Jason King, who's a reporter at ESPN, uh, was pretty close with James Harris. He did uh, a big profile on him a, a few years back and s- uh, reported on Monday that last Wednesday he had contracted COVID-19, which they believed came. He had to go to m- multiple times per week to a dialysis center. Um, and he was fine on Sunday morning, but then went into cardiac arrest and died Sunday afternoon. He was 70. And for a guy that had all of these health problems, um, you know, that it was just a very unfortunate, um, way that his, his life, like he went through a lot of suffering in his latter years and whether his death was directly a result of COVID-19, if that was a complication, like that was certainly something that uh, played a factor in all of this. Yeah, it's really sad. Um, you know, more shitty news to kind of add on to uh, this entire year. Uh, but it's really unfortunate that like the last I personally really heard through Kamala has been through these really terrible incidents, really one after another. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's it's really, really unfortunate. And it seems like it, it, this was a loss that that has really affected uh, a great deal of the wrestling community because so many people have such fond memories of him. This one surprised me that it didn't have a graphic tonight on Raw. It did, off the top. They did have a graphic. I Yes. Oh, okay. I missed that. Okay. Well, that's nice that they had that at the start of Raw. Um, the G1 schedule has been released by New Japan, and they are going forward 19 dates away, starting September 18th with back-to-back nights in Osaka. And it's going to run through October 18th. Last three nights will be... At Sumo Hall, we talked a bit about this on the show on Saturday, but I guess the next interesting question, Way, is what what is the field going to consist of? Will they be at full capacity regarding foreigners? That is the question. I'm sure uh, one that they're trying to monitor very closely all the time. Um, that uh, admittedly, um, I'm I'm very excited for the G1 to return. I'm excited for a lot of these potential matchups, even with the the roster members that are there. But if there's something that re- is really taking the luster out of it this year, it, it might be the fact that we have a depleted, you know, half of a New Japan Pro Wrestling roster. Part of the what I think made last year so unique was uh, the addition of a name like a John Moxley being thrown in the mix um, and not realizing how exactly that might look. You know, regardless, um, getting the chance to potentially see like a Yuji Nagata again back into the G1 because of, you know, strictly numbers, that in itself, I think is interesting. Um, so I'm sure the matches will be great. But uh, yeah, at this point, I-, I wonder if we would even get, you know, I know you guys had talked about uh, potentially seeing some of the New Zealanders come back. Um, mm. You know, the Americans, are, of course, are really interesting, whether or not they'll have any sort of interaction. Um that would certainly make, you know, yeah. Anyway, I, the, the whole situation is changing uh, all the time. So who knows, like in a month's time, what, what that'll look like. If if New Japan was in a position where, for whatever reason, they are restricted with who they can use for the G1, do you see them going with the the roster as it's currently made up that it would be New Japan talent? Or would there be an impetus to make the G1 in in the absence of all the foreigners to maybe look for some creative participants within Japan outside of new Japan that you would be more inclined to bring in. Um, I would personally not love that. Uh, I, I guess I'm just trying to think like, um, who would you work with? What companies would you work with at this point? Who would a name be that you could see new Japan working with? Well, I, 
first of all, I don't, I, I wouldn't be like, I think that there would be some pressure to put some surprises in, but I don't know how, how reluctant they would be as opposed to just, Hey, we've got our talent that we're going to take care of. And it's going to be a new Japan heavy focused tournament. But I mean, there's new Japan. I mean, it's all in how, how much of a necessity it is. Like you could, you could talk to any company and I would think that most companies would be willing to loan out a talent for such a, a major tournament that, Hopefully it has the residual effect that someone goes in there, has a great showing, and that's our guy that comes back. You think it's just heavyweights, or do we see a mixture of uh, juniors again? I would say you have to have some junior heavyweights in there this year. Certainly, I think so too, uh, especially with a name like Hiromu, who, I mean, you know, was a, is really a, one of the top stars right now. I mean, I, it, 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 like the lack of foreigners aside, I think the, like the idea of seeing Hiromu Takahashi in the mix proper with everybody in a G1 block, that in itself, I think, could be a big draw. Yeah, I could see, you know, depending on where, what their numbers are and how, how much they need to fill spots, I could see Hiromu. Hiromu, I would think, regardless, I think should be in it. Uh, Shotanaka would be another one that I, I would be looking at that maybe could get a spot. And yeah, a lot of this is going to be contingent on that, that foreigner question. And when the, how much the field is made up and we're, we're only a month out from this, a month, uh, five weeks from this tournament. So it probably will not be too long until they're revealing the field for this. Did you get to see any of uh, New Japan Strong, the debut show on Friday? No, unfortunately not. Um, I don't think it's something you, you need to go out of your way to see. But they have uh, released the lineup for Friday's card. It's going to be the semifinals of this number one contenders tournament for the U.S. title. Jeff Cobb against Kenta, which Jeff Cobb has promised WH Park... 20 flips we're going to see in this match. So I think that uh, WH Park has spiked interest in New Japan Strong. David Finlay against Tamatonga. And they've also announced some tag matches with TJP, Alex Zane, and ACH taking on PJ Black, Mysterioso, and Blake Christian. And Clark Connors and Jordan Clearwater against Logan Regal and Barrett Brown. So an interesting makeup of talent. So four matches on Friday's show. But... uh I think the Jeff Cobb Kenta match has gained uh, lots of notoriety over the last 24 hours. To, yeah, special stipulation uh, brought forward by WH Park. So uh, I think WH should be booking all the King of Pro Wrestling matches. If there's one thing I hear all the time from WH is his desire for more flips in matches. That's right. Uh, but did you get a chance to see the last episode? And Yeah, uh, I watched. I watched the show on Friday night. I mean... I wouldn't say any of the matches were spectacular. It's it's very similar to the Impact Wrestling setup where it's just an empty studio. So you're you're really relying on just the the performers in the ring for any kind of environment. Kenta, I found his style really worked well because of the just the sound of his strikes and he's got just tremendous facial expressions that it it worked. He also came out with like his hair is all like, this looks like a guy who decided to go to sleep for the last five months and he woke <laughs> up for this particular new series on New Japan World. He just comes out and d- dude's been living the quarantine life. Um, but him and Carl Fredericks, it was, uh, that was the best match of the four. Uh, the rest, I, like, I, I thought it was very basic matches, like nothing to write home about on week one. So I was, I was more on the WH side of things when it came to assessing certain matches. Um, 
But week two, it looks like an interesting lineup. I think I think this looks like a stronger show than than week number one. We also have the updated card for uh, Jingu Stadium uh, on August 29th. So our new lineup, it consists of six matches, Evil and Naito for the double championship, Zack Sabre Jr. and Taichi versus Hiroshi Tanahashi and Kota Ibushi for the tag titles, Hiromu Takahashi, Taiji Ishimori for the junior heavyweight title, Shingo Takagi against Minoru Suzuki for the never openweight title, our very anticipated four-way for the King of Pro Wrestling crown, uh, which will be made up uh, with the winners of the August 26th Core Q and Hall show with stipulations galore. And then rounding out Jingu Stadium, Yoshinobu Kanemaru versus Master Wato. Ooh. Um, I I mean, it's, it's, it's yet another, you know, early showcase for Master Wato. Um, I, you know, it, it's an undercard match. I, I really, at this point, I'm starting to accept the look, you know, like how you just, you might move into like a new house. You maybe hate, like you love everything about it, but you hate this one room and the layout of this one room. You're going to live in that house for like two, three months and you're going to get used to that one room. Like, and I've gotten used to the decor of this Master Wato. It's, it's, it's fine. Uh, we'll let the wrestling speak for itself and hope he has a good match. But uh, to me, you know, the people's main event on that particular show is, again, the Never Openweight Championship. You got Shingo Takagi taking on Minoru Suzuki in uh, what looks like a, an awesome match. I would say it's closer to the equivalent of moving into a brand new house and not realizing that there's a train that comes by every 20 minutes. And uh, because a train is what I think of when uh, this gimmick comes up. Can you imagine when he turns heel, though? Sure. Maybe. What a, does that consist of? Well, maybe announcing of this, this character and informing us that this entire run has been a waste of time. And now I'm going to hit the reset. Possibly. Which this whole excursion should have been. Yeah, well, yeah, he's like sort of like the nerdy guy right now, and then like he become he like starts wearing leather jackets. Maybe like maybe he just becomes like Onita. He starts smoking. Um, this guy needs a cigarette. You're right. Yeah, that would, that, that would help. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Maybe maybe there is hope in uh, Master Wato. Um, over the w- the weekend, actually Thursday through Sunday, uh, Fozzie did a series of shows. This has gotten a lot of focus, uh, including. A show, this was at the the infamous Sturgis Rally that WCW fans will remember. They did shows in North and South Dakota. Uh, they also did one in Fort Madison, Iowa, among the, uh, the four shows they did. Uh, this Sturgis Rally got a lot of attention over the weekend because uh, this gathering was to encompass 250,000 people. Uh, there had been some photos going around from the, the Fozzie shows of Lots of people. Um, it looked like they were not obeying the uh, the six feet markers that must have been on the floor. Um, <laughs> I didn't have my ruler out. It it seemed like they were just slightly uh, closer than six feet together, and uh, I don't know what uh, what the percentage of masks were. Uh, Chris Jericho did address this on Saturday night on his uh, on his online show. He said that these shows were kept on because there had been a low number of COVID cases in North and South Dakota, and the shows were either outdoors. Or the indoor ones were limited to one show was limited to fifty percent capacity, the other thirty five percent. But I mean, you're watching this way, and it's it was concerning, and I think a lot of people were. And on top of that, like I I would think that if you were an AEW roster member, it would have been somewhat concerning knowing that there's TV this Wednesday, and 
this show, it's it's heavily built around Chris Jericho. So, I mean, obviously he's going to be tested. Uh, and Jericho said that the band and crew, they were all tested and stayed in their uh, – uh, stayed in their their vehicle or, or whatever in their tour bus. Um, so I mean, there was some precautions, but when it came to fans attending this, I mean, it was like temperature checks and masks being handed out. I mean, to me, that's um, I, I wouldn't even say that's bare minimum these days. I think that that's um, temperature checks mean almost nothing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, it's been a little bit difficult to kind of read, like you know, as a fan, just as a onlooker, like Chris Jericho's own real perspective about the the whole thing. I mean, certainly uh, working for AEW, they seem to be a company that for the most part has taken this like pretty seriously and have been pretty proactive with testing and everything. Um, but you know, Jericho also like promoting a cruise during all this seems like relatively tone deaf and then doing something like this after, uh, like performing in front of a crowd at, at a Sturgis rally, which is, kind of like getting a rep for race basically like being like a bit of an anti like COVID like anti-mask or anti-coronavirus like type of thing or like talking about coronavirus like it's anyway I don't I don't want to speak for the people uh, at Sturgis but um I... Smash Mouth is getting uh smashed <laughs> for th- their comments here I couldn't believe Smash Mouth was getting booked in 2020. I, you know what? Sturgis Rally. Listen, I think that's a bad look to begin with, to, to book Smash Mouth. And listen, Smash Mouth are a very easy target in all circles. So um, that that's just maybe, you know, a, a sticky situation on all ends. Um, I think Jericho's excuses seem to indicate that he's thought about this and that there was a level of, like... You know, thinking before agreeing to to do the show. Um, as we progress with all this stuff, like everybody's level of risk is going to be different. The only you know thing that I think we could really chastise somebody for is if they're going to be going against like things that are regulation and things that are rules. Um, and clearly, it was not a rule at this place for people to socially distance or wear masks. Um, Jericho, I think, will be tested. At I mean, he will be tested, of course. So, like AEW can always rely on that. Um, so I, I hope he's okay. Of course, um, I think mm-hmm. that you know, I, I I would hope that uh, I don't know. I don't know what what medical chances may be of of everything, but I'm I'm hoping he's per- perfectly fine. Um, but I I guess this is you know more of a lesson that things like this are going to be ridiculed by people. Um, because they want to ensure that everybody is following the same precautions that we all are. Like a lot of us are making huge sacrifices to, to, you know, inconvenience our daily lives. And I guess the feeling that others aren't is just, is, is making people feel like they're, they're being disrespected. Yeah. It's like, I I have less uh, concerns about like the band contracting anything is more than just, you know, when you're talking about 250,000 people, which I would assume a, a decent percentage of coming from from different states, what are they leaving uh, South Dakota with and potentially bringing back? It just seems like here is a Petri dish of problems and dispersing them back to where they came from and 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 what this promotes as well. And I do understand people's frustration with all of this and feeling the need that we do need to push some boundaries to see what 
is acceptable. And this to me would be multiple steps beyond what I think people would say would be reasonable risk to see what we are capable of. And I would also be looking at the U.S. as lower on the scale of an example of a country that is willing to see where the next step is in terms of normalcy. Yeah, I mean, certainly, like, if you're going to blame anybody, um, I, I feel like you have to really blame the people that are putting the event on and really the the jurisdiction that the event is taking place in for allowing They did it. some survey of citizens, and it was something like 60% of citizens there did not want this thing to take place, and they went forward with it. So it was like even the locals, like a good a good percentage of them, did not want this coming, and I don't blame them. Like, don't bring this to our state, just exactly what was mentioned like we have lower case numbers here we don't want to blow this up here mm -hmm. yeah yeah um i mean i i get the feeling you're going to see a lot more instances like this in in the coming weeks as uh at least like speaking for us in, in ontario as like you know things start to open back up and even in the states in some parts things starting to open back up you're going to see you know continued conflict of, of what people are comfortable with versus where people feel like they, they, they should continue to be very cautious. Well, we're seeing it now with, with schools going mm -hmm. back and like some schools where it's like full on classes, you're talking like 30 people in a classroom that that's the current plan for a certain segment. Others, I think it's more uh, of a staggered re return to school, but for some it's, it's like full classes that we're looking at in September. And there's a lot of concern about that. Yeah. Um, and it, that 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 thing looked packed. Um, so there are clearly a lot of people that are perfectly fine with it. Smash Mouth is still a hit in 2020. Uh, you have a song like All Star, like or Walking on the Sun, two two just seminal works of our time. Um, you deserve to have a career forever. Yes, I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. She was looking kind of dumb with her finger and her thumb in the shape of an L on her forehead. <laughs> Maybe pretty appropriate, actually. This is the COVID anthem for Sturgis. I, I wish I, I mean, I could, I wish I could have like a Zoom feed of just like that, a crowd of bikers just <laughs> like getting down to that song, all putting their <laughs> L's up on their head. Oh man, if there's if there was one straight line, it's my disdain of Smash Mouth. I'm just glad it's consistent uh throughout all these decades. But hey, they're still around, so so who's laughing? At least, you know, in Ontario way, the most the most semblance of normalcy was seeing the the Toronto Maple Leafs knocked out. Uh, like it felt like normal today to hear everybody just ready to rip apart this Toronto Maple Leafs organization and we got to just break it down, burn down this house and rebuild it. It's like, we're back to normal with, with the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, choking early and living up to people's uh, minimal expectations and then still failing. Well, to me, like the past, I would say week for the Leafs, and this is coming as a complete non-hockey fan at this point, but just seeing the reaction online really kind of like showed me how fickle <laughs> fandom really is, especially when it comes to our local sports teams. Because like, they had one game where they were up 3 nothing, ended up blowing that 3 nothing lead to lose 4-3, to okay? And then the whole world was like, man, the Leafs suck. Fuck the Leafs. Fuck the Leafs. <laughs> then the next game... There's no worse fan base than Toronto fans. Oh, then the next game, 
they're down zero to three heading into the third period this is an elimin- elimination game they're pretty much out with three and a half minutes to go they score three goals john they scored three goals in the span of three and a half minutes remaining at the end of the game and then at that point it was like Praise the Leafs. They are the greatest team ever. They head into overtime. They win the damn game to force the game five. And it's just like, wow, the Leafs are the best. I love hockey. I love hockey. (laughs) And then, of course, they lose the next game. And it's back to normal. I just think it's uh, Toronto Maple Leafs. It's the hardest team, I think, in the NHL. Montreal Canadiens might might be up there, too, like in terms of a demanding fan base. But it is... It is unbelievable. And I say it as a guy that is, you know, several steps removed from being like a hockey follower. I'm just kind of, uh, I'm just like watching from afar. And it's like, man, the the intensity of this pressure. I personally, I will say this, and maybe I'll, I'll lose my Canadian citizenship. I hope the Maple Leafs never win the Stanley Cup in my lifetime. I want to just live in a world where it's the constant chase and disappointment because I find what happens we win the cup. It's like, it's all over. I want them to make it to the Stanley Cup Finals, Game 7, and they lose in overtime. Like the Bruins from That'd a few years ago, but in the Stanley Cup Finals. I yeah. mean, that, that to me is the perfect way for the Leafs to get... When they first came up with this whole playoff contraption, there was actually people saying, oh, of course, this is going to be the year that we win the Cup, and it's going to be with, a, with an asterisk. It's like, you people, uh, like, nothing, nothing will satisfy. <laughs> it's like, oh, God, we got to win the Cup under these circumstances. Well, trust me, this is the Maple Leafs. You really don't have to worry about that. You know, like, we, we I, I certainly think more, like, of sports as sort of, like, a, from a, from a wrestling fan's perspective, and I have to think, like, yeah, the Leafs will win the Stanley Cup. Then what? Then what's your story? You know, it's all it's all about the chase. It's all over after that. I mean, how it, it, are, are the are the the Red Sox like that compelling now? Now that they they they've won multiple times. No, so. you're either the best or you're the worst. That's we gotta we gotta make the long. Do we have the longest streak? Uh, Although, yeah, yeah. Uh, beyond. I mean, sixty-seven. I, I, I hate to put you on the spot, but. Yeah. When did the Blackhawks last win uh, a Stanley Cup? God, they they've they've won one recently, like in the last like decade or so. So they they had a long drought, but then won. It has to be the Maple Leafs. Okay, well, uh, don't correct us, everybody. Don't. Really oh, I, I I want everyone to at me, please, <laughs> please, in capital letters. Uh, okay, I'll, th- I'll tell you actually. Uh, okay, 2014. 2015. 2015 they won. The Blackhawks did. Oh, that yes. recently. Okay. I thought it was like within the decade, but it was even closer than that. Okay. Mm. Uh, this is somewhat connected to Chris Jericho. Maybe. Uh, the exhibition fight between Roy Jones Jr. and Mike Tyson was supposed to take place September 12th, which is a week after All Out. It's now been postponed until November 28th. So I think that that makes it somewhat interesting to see if All Out is even a possibility to do this Jericho Tyson thing and... If so, like if you would be shooting that angle uh, on Wednesday and they may have moved on, that may not be a plan at all, but it's going to refuel that speculation at least. Yeah, um, it certainly is hard for me to imagine that he would take part in any sort of match. Um, If we're talking, you know, something like a special referee's role or like what he did at WrestleMania, what is it like some whatever enforcer? I think that that's very possible. We're just really talking about cameo at this point, right? And throwing a work punch. I think if AEW is using him, I think they want him in a match. I just don't see him getting that physical and risking, um, you know, his health by 
taking any sort of flat back bump. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what his body can really handle. I mean, this is an exhibition that they're promoting in November. It's not like a full-fledged fight, but it's... Um, but an injury will, will like, destroy all that. Yes. I don't know if Tyson is necessarily thinking about long-term versus what is... How lucrative is this AEW offer? Like, ultimately, I see him doing something with AEW. The question is when. The AEW offer will always be there. I think so, too. I think, you know, they've shot this angle and they'll get to it at some point. But I think it makes it a little more intriguing for this Wednesday because that's, I mean, it's been brought up by multiple people about the idea of Tyson leading to Orange Cassidy beating Jericho, which is a very simple, effective angle to get to all out if you were going to do that. But I guess this at least opens the window for the opportunity to do that. And the final note here. Very savvy. Last week, we were talking about ESPN Plus, up to 8.5 million subscribers. Well, this Wednesday, they are increasing their monthly price way. They are going from uh, $4.99 a month to $5.99 a month for new subscribers. And this comes just days ahead of what's going to be one of the biggest pay-per-views of the year with UFC 252. So for new for people that already were subscribing to this in the states you get your old price for at least a year and they are not changing the yearly amount you can get the the service for the year for 49.99 and i think that's the strategy here is that we're increasing the price per month because we want everyone to lock in for a year and it's kind of strange that WWE does not have that option to lock yourself mm-hmm. in for a year and that's always been up until these last couple of quarters, we've always seen this big churn of people that drop the service. And I mean, I've never really given it that much thought until today of the fact that that's not an option, that you have $9.99 per month or you do something like 90 for the year that I think a sizable amount would lock themselves into knowing they get a free month. And, and then you know what your business is going to be for a year by locking people in. So I do think this is a smart strategy by ESPN Plus, and I think people that want to get this pay per view on Saturday, uh, a buck is not going to impact them. No, and I hate that. Um, you know, squeezing like even a dollar out of you, but like the psychology involved in like pricing is just incredibly fascinating to me. Uh, but I, I'm with you. Like, if I was somebody who subscribed to this thing. I wouldn't even think any anything of this. I mean, it's a jump from four ninety nine to five ninety nine, and that just feels so insignificant uh, that it's not even worth thinking about. And I, I feel like that's you know exactly the type of psychology that 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 they probably want. Mm-hmm. They're also keeping the uh, the bundle price, so I think that's what they're steering you towards: either get ESPN Plus for the year or get the bundle for I think it's twelve ninety nine a month for Disney and Hulu as well. I think this pay-per-view way is going to be gigantic on Saturday. I am I have been looking forward to this fight since the second one ended. And when they announced it, I like this is going to be such a huge fight on Saturday. There's su- such huge stakes involved. What sort of uh, stuff will be coming up on the site? Oh, great segue. So this week, uh, first off, Tuesday night is our Rocky review. This is our new film review series uh, kicking off with Rocky 1 starring Sylvester Stallone. And Carl Weathers from 1976. Yes, the classic that started it all. Uh, I'm looking forward to 
going through this entire series with John on our new Patreon. This, of course, replaces our Marvel Cinematic Universe reviews for the time being. Uh, we'll be doing every Rocky film, Rocky Balboa, ending with the two Creed films. And I'm looking forward to you know, like following this, this decades-long arc in several very different feeling films as we uh, progress through the entire catalog. So that'll start uh, Tuesday, and it will re- repeat every single month. Um, the first one, and to some people, maybe the best one, Rocky One. Yes, that will be available for all CAFE members, uh, dropping Tuesday night. Wednesday, we've got Rewind to Dynamite, and up next, Thursday, I'm going to be doing a UFC 252 preview show with James Lynch, our former colleague and great MMA cool. analyst and reporter, so he's going to be joining me. We're going to go through UFC 252. And, and, and great John Pollock impressionist. That Meaning is... he does a great impression of John Pollock. Okay, well, maybe, maybe he will uh, break that out. We will find out. Uh, you can tune into that on Thursday. Um, James is a man of many impressions, beyond just me. That is true. His Musashi is uh, probably his best. Top notch. Uh, then what else do we've got? We have on... Thursday, uh, Braden and John Ceno are going to be doing an up next movie review of Money Plane, starring Kelsey Grammer and Adam Copeland. And I saw a clip of this that I think Braden posted, and this looks like the most insane film that I will not watch, but I'll probably listen to their review. I, I guarantee you the review will probably be more interesting, at least to me, than the actual movie. So uh, awesome. John Cena has been doing a lot of great stuff over at the post wrestling, uh, or sorry, the up next Patreon. Uh, he just released a, sh- a new show that he's got on their Patreon called a shot in the dark, which is a weekly review of uh, AEW dark. And uh, along with like a whole b- lot of other things that John Cena might like end up watching. He's a guy who watches a lot of like in- indies that are out there. So if he catches like a match that he thinks you should see, he'll probably talk about it on this show, a shot in the dark. Uh, it's like a 20 minute thing gets you all caught up. And actually last week was like just 10 minutes. And at this point I'm like, awesome. Like I need more short bursts like these. So uh, yes. check out the up next Patreon for, for uh, some of John Cena's work. They've got a pretty stacked lineup for dark on Tuesday night. Ray Phoenix has a match. Rachel, uh, Rachel Ellering was actually on the, uh, the tag uh, tournament show on Monday night, as was uh, Nicole Savoy. So some interesting stuff going on there. Friday night, we're live with Rewind to SmackDown, 10, 15 p.m. Eastern Time, right after SmackDown. You can tune in, call in. Saturday, the Rocky Maivia Picture Show returns. Nate Milton will be joined by not one, but two guests, Stephen Gooderidge and MJ from NJ, as they discuss the pilot episode of Ballers, which may as well be a documentary now of Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, isn't that weird? Um, I'm sure Nate will have plenty of thoughts to speak of uh, our new XFL co-president. Or yeah, co-owner, I mean, they're I guess, gonna have to. This, this could be the pivot from the Rocky Maivia picture show to like our XFL recap show at some point. Wow, imagine that. Um, do you ever watch Ballers? Never. No, I've heard great things though. Do you? I watched the first season, and I think I stopped after season one. I mean, it's okay. It's it's almost like a very entourage ish, mm-hmm. which was okay. You're saying it might be a two X viewing. 1.5 to be generous. Yeah. And then Saturday night, capping off the week, it's our UFC 252 post show. Myself and Phil will be going live at youtube.com slash post wrestling. Go subscribe. You will get a uh, notification when we're going live. So you won't miss anything. And we will be going live right after the main card where either Steve Miocic will be 
uh, retaining his heavyweight title, or Daniel Cormier could have one of the great endings to a MMA career by winning the heavyweight title. And after he gives a heartfelt retirement speech, everyone's going to be prodding him to fight John Jones again. Well, you sold me. All right. What a week. Postwrestling.com. Go check all of that stuff out. And also Tuesday, Andrew Thompson will have an interview up on the site with Tracy Williams of Ring of Honor. So check all of that out. Uh, anything else, Way, before we get to... I wanted to give a shout-out to UNWH and uh, Dylan Fox for a great edition of Post Pro Res that, that is up on our main feed right now. Uh, that took place on Saturday. And on Sunday, WH dropped his latest edition of The the Long and Winding World Road with Daniel Makabe, uh, very good independent show. wrestler, talking about uh, just his love of All Japan Pro Wrestling in the 90s. And uh, in particular, this Hidden Gem tag team match that... Uh, I really had not heard about until Daniel, you know, brought it up here. So to hear those two break that down that match, uh, you can find a link to watch that in the show description of that particular podcast. So check all that out at postwrestling.com. Monday Night Raw from the Performance Center. They were immediately plugging Raw Underground, 10 p.m. They were not making you... Uh, have a chance to forget about what was coming up in hour number three. But in case you are worried about all these changes that Raw has been making of late, let's go to the old reliable contract signing way. Oh, good. Yes. Yes, of course. Yeah. What can a match become without a contract being signed? And we were going to get multiple contracts signed because Samoa Joe is our MC. And he noted that Dominic will not just be signing a contract to face Seth at SummerSlam. He's also signing a WWE contract. So looks like they're trying to get all the Mysterios to put pen to paper. <laughs> Any, uh, I guess, like, did this indicate to you whether or not you're getting it? I mean, the fact that Dominic Mysterio is taking part in a match at SummerSlam, does that indicate to you uh, what Ray's status might be? I think everyone is expecting that Ray is... Staying with WWE, I think it would be at this point very surprising if anything else happened. And based on tonight, I think we have to get Ray at SummerSlam. So, based on tonight, hmm. If he's got one, like he's only got one eye though. The optic nerve was fine though. <laughs> okay, all right. Been busy recovering. One. Sure. Maybe he'll maybe he'll just have a dark patch on that on that side of the. Uh, the, it was great on like his because he already had one. on his Instagram. He's doing like some product like advertisement, and he's wearing the mask where his eye is all covered. So I mean, kudos to him. Oh, okay, wow, that's yeah, that's commitment. You didn't listen to the Seth Rollins interview, did you? No, I uh, that's the a, one today. A, yes, no, I haven't. That's a whole separate podcast. He, in a nutshell, was asked about the lack of long-term storytelling and his belief is that the fan base is just so wired now to want instant gratification that they are just not wired to have the patience level for long-term storytelling and surprise, surprise Seth Rollins had a negative response to an interview he conducted. And I would say that when you're in a company where, sorry, sorry, so, so he didn't like the quote. Or he didn't like the... No, no, no. He, no, no. Sorry. He, there was negativity towards his answer. Oh, um, yes. Okay. Where he was, you know, he was critical of the fan base saying that, you know, our younger audience, they don't have the patience for long-term storytelling, to which I think most would counter that your chairman that oversees creative 
has the worst attention span when it comes to long-term storytelling and stuff gets torn up on a moment's notice. And that I think quite honestly, it's, I think that's a real cop out for a company that cannot stick to a lot of long-term storytelling and the ones they do. I mean, what's the best program going on in, in WWE right now? I would say Orton and edge has been largely met with positivity once you get past the WrestleMania match. And I, I think S- that Sasha, I just Sasha think Bailey it, is going to be a long-term thing by the end of it. And people, well, I look that. at some of the most popular, like we're, we're talking about like the MCU films. Let's get out of the wrestling bubble. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just think like that's such a misread of your audience. And it's also one that you don't even have the ability to back that claim up because there's, there's so few examples of long storytelling that, WWE, it's notorious that things get changed on a dime. So is he saying like that in defense of this Dominic storyline? Because somehow by the end of this all, this whole thing, people will have been, I guess younger people will have been uh, shown to to have overreacted to the eye for an eye match. Here, here's a portion of the quote. I think it's a, it's kind of a lost art across the board in entertainment. That being long-term storytelling. And not that it's a lost art, just the audience. As we get into this age of instant gratification, they don't have the patience for long-term storytelling. When you can binge watch your favorite series in two days as opposed to two months, it creates a different precedent for how we intake our entertainment. It's the difference between watching a full match and just seeing gifs of it or the highlights. So I just think people are intaking their entertainment on a different level. It's the difference between artists releasing singles as opposed to full-length albums because of the way consumers are taking their entertainment in. So he's looking at it. It's a generational thing that um, they, they're just doing things week to week. I, I actually like the answer a lot. I mean, it, 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 it tells you that he thinks a lot about something like this. Um, but I guess I just don't really know if it's relevant to this particular story and the criticisms of his particular performances. I mean, at least speaking as for myself, my issue was never like, where is this going? Where is this going? It was more so like, I hate these promos. I can't stand this character. I can't like stand the, 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 the pattern of speech. He's now all of a sudden, you know, just starting to, 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 um, I don't know, uh, adopt. Um, but I've actually like come to enjoy it fine. Like I, like I've said in previous podcasts, I've kind of turned a corner on him. I don't know if that's just me or, or maybe it's the fact that I think he's actually been better as, as the character. I'm really unsure, but, um, uh, I mean, that's an interesting thought. I just, I don't know. Like, that's also to, to uh, like, Seth is also insinuating that everything that we have seen up until this point will make more sense in the future. And do you feel, well, let's say right now. I, I, I don't think he was really saying that because he was actually asked about, like, do you know, like, the long-term, like, arc of where the story is going? And he pretty much said, like, I don't know long term, like it's really week to week, like was his answer towards this. And like, I just think it comes down to if something is good, people will support it. And I I will look at like a Marvel movie that I mean, you're asking people to spend money to sit down for three hours and follow this thing for 11 years. And it was uh, some of the most successfully commercial films of all time. Uh, Conversely, I can sit down for three hours of raw every week and what happened two weeks ago has no bearing today, and things that were introduced may be dropped. Remember that guy Mustafa Ali? Uh, vague? No. Uh, yes, I do. Yeah. Well, 
long-term s- storytelling, John. You don't know. He might be uh, lurking in the shadows. He might be one of these retribution guys. Well, anyway. Um, yeah, he did that on the uh, the Gorilla Position podcast, if people want to listen to it. There's a link to it in the update. But nonetheless, uh, contract signing. Uh, Joe introduces Seth as the Goliath in our David versus Goliath tale. And Dominic comes out to his own theme music and his trusty kendo stick. Joe takes the kendo stick and Rollins, uh, Joe refers to as sad. He says, you're Seth freaking Rollins. You should be the greatest performer of this generation instead of this version. And Rollins, he says that he has given Dominic and Ray a choice this entire time. He never forced this upon them. Rollins is the one who was forced into this position. He was Mr. Burn It Down, but you all crapped on it. When will it be enough? And Dominic says, it will never be enough. Alistair Black is not the same. My father's confidence isn't the same. You took good men and changed them for the worst and used the greater good for yourself. And Dominic says, wrestling was my dream, but my new dream is kicking your ass, you bitch. Rollins says, you wouldn't last 10 seconds with me in a regular match. I'm the best of my generation, so I'm going to suggest that at SummerSlam, you're allowed to use the kendo stick as well as any other weapon, and then you're going to have no excuses when I end your career before it even starts. And we got many signatures here across three contracts, and the match is official. So what, did he say this was like a no DQ? He said this was a weapons are legal for Dominic match. That's what I took from this. Can Seth not use weapons? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I I, I wasn't exactly sure uh, what, like it wasn't explicitly stated, I guess, in a graphic or anything like that. But I imagine they, it seems like they might have some sort of stipulation attached to this. By the way, did they mention SummerSlam, you won't see it coming on this show? Thankfully, they had graphics, so I could read the tagline throughout the show. Oh, it was there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you won't see it coming unless we put it on the screen multiple times in clear text. Mm, yes. Then you'll see it coming. I, I actually enjoyed the segment. I mean, like I've said, I've been enjoying Seth more lately. He really feels like just a, a real good maniacal heel, especially like with this Dominic storyline with Rey Mysterio. And I thought he sounded good here, as did Dominic for his limited role. What if he threw up at the end of this? Um, for what reason? Long-term storytelling, I guess we'll find out. Yeah, maybe he has a gag reflex that we're going to learn of. Uh, So they had a match with Seth and Umberto Carrillo, who's back. Man's still around. Um, Very short match. Murphy distracted as Dominic used a kendo stick, and Carrillo went for a moonsault, landed on Rollins' feet, powerbomb stomp, and he beat Carrillo in three minutes and and six seconds. So, yep. bye-bye, Umberto. Well, at least he didn't have his eye taken out. That's true. He left with uh, 20-20 vision. Yeah. Murphy then attacked Dominic, and we had a two-on-one attack. As Seth was saying, I told you, take notes. And Dominic fights free. He tries to take them down. He eats a knee, and it's the numbers disadvantage for Dominic. And then they tear off his shirt, and they beat the piss out of this poor dude with these kendo sticks. And I thought Rollins was as maniacal as possible in this segment. He's looking into the camera. Hi, Papa Ray. Beg for mercy for your son, you coward. And 
it was almost to the point of overdoing it. Like this was the Tommy Dreamer angle, mm-hmm. like on three times the speed. They <laughs> hit him with like five thousand kendo stick shots, and I then mean, I mean it's like it is almost like twenty five years later after that. So they do have to up the ante a little, don't you think? I, I thought it was already like very effective, and I, I didn't have um, any real qualms with this. But then they go under the ring and they bring out more kendo sticks. I mean, it's two of them, but they've got like eight kendo sticks between them, and they have Murphy from behind and Rollins from the front. And dude, the camera cuts here. It was uh, I felt like I was hitting, getting hit with a kendo stick, and the welts over this guy's chest and back were just brutal. Mm-hmm. This was like a really heavy-duty angle. And I will say, by the end of this, you I don't know if you had the, the belief that Dominic is going to get his revenge, but at the very least, I think you want Ray to show up to extract revenge. But I thought this was like a really effective angle. I think at the very least, the idea is whether or not you want to see either Dominic or Ray get their revenge on Seth Rollins. And, um, you know, there's something about seeing like physical pain, whether it be in the form of like, you know, Matt Hardy's like, um, nine stitch open wound that he suffered or like seeing just like these welts on Dominic's back that really you can't fake. And, um, it, it, it was just effective. It created like a very violent, serious tone. Um, and certainly Makes you kind of, you know, it's a it's a departure from like having a fake eye thing with the with the vomit. So uh, maybe critics of that might have enjoyed something like this better. I thought this was like this served, you know, its purpose in several ways. One, of course, yeah, to like build heat for this match between Dominic and Seth Rollins. But for, you know, a casual audience who has just seen this guy, Dominic Mysterio, who's never wrestled one proper singles match in his entire career, all of a sudden getting a WWE contract, at least in storyline, and then you know, this featured match against Seth Rollins, I think it very much worked in the same way as Tommy Dreamer, trying to, you know, earn the audience's respect to show that this kid, he's not just here because he's... He is obviously here because he's Rey Mysterio's son, but he is also willing to work for it. He's willing to take punishment. He's willing to take some very real pain on live TV in order to earn the audience's trust. I felt like there might have been elements of that at play here, as well as, you know, who knows whatever, like, locker room stuff... It exists, you know, there too, you know, to try to earn the locker room's respect, perhaps. Um, I thought all those things really made this like program and and this segment very compelling. Yeah, I've been very impressed with Dominic. Like, I don't think we appreciate how much has been thrown on this guy, given his lack of experience and what he has come through with. And to your point, especially the post-match, I thought Seth was excellent. Yeah. The announcers react after the break, and I was glad that Joe had this line in where he said that, you know, he is here, he is handcuffed at this desk, and he kind of just rooted on Dominic uh, for this match with Rollins, because it was to a point that you are asking, like, where is Joe to stand up to these guys, which we had just seen him do last week, and he's just sitting here through... 5,000 kendo stick shots. So, I mean, they tried to at least address it here that he does have a job and an obligation that he cannot get involved. But at the same time, he was about to do that last week. Last week, though, was them threatening a colleague of his. Like, I guess, like, if you're in the kayfabe world of pro wrestling, it's an unspoken rule that you don't touch the people that are not performers. And last week was Joe standing up to to Rollins for going after a colleague. And, And I thought that was absolutely fair. This week... 
Um, I almost got the sense when Joe was like talking here to the camera that it was almost as more like um, I I didn't want to get involved because this was you know a man trying to prove his worth. And I thought if you ran with that sort of thing um, by cutting to the desk and seeing like anguish on Joe's face, like looking at this going on, but realizing he couldn't step in because like this was almost like almost like, you know, a guy had to like basically earn this uh, and, you know, almost like a I don't know. What do you call that? Initiation of sorts as you know terrible as that sounds in 2020. But like that to me, that sort of storyline and Samoa Joe characterizing himself as not just a protector, but as a mentor for Dominic um, to toughen him up. I, I think that would be really interesting. Tom Phillipson asks if Montez Ford is going to be good to go for SummerSlam after last week's poisoning. Right back to normal here. Zelina Vega comes out and pleads her innocence. She also threatens the N extras to turn their masks into muzzles. And she said she would never ruin her client's title opportunity by poisoning another man. And she keeps her men in line, unlike Bel Air. And she had nothing to do with the poisoning, but Andrade and Garza will have everything to do with ending their tag title run. Angelo Dawkins comes out. We're still doing this, this bloody light dimming shit. And Tom Phillips mentions that after SmackDown, we've got extra security who did a fantastic job tonight. Oh, God. <laughs> um, this is the stupidest angle of the year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're talking about just the, the security? No, a retribution period. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, hey, long-term storytelling, John. You kids... Downloading your singles, no time for albums. You're right. Even you maybe in GIF form, I can I can consume this. Just give me cars tipping and uh, chainsaws being uh, cutting cutting rope down. Yes. We also got a promo uh, for something I will be watching uh, never, and that is Game On, featuring The Big Show and Gabriel Iglesias on Netflix. <laughs> this looked like uh, TV off. Uh, will be my response to Game On. <laughs> This looks brutal. Angela Dawkins and Andrade. A lot of aggression from Dawkins. I hope, Way, if I ever got poisoned, you would show this level of aggression in my honor. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I would uh, wear a headband, everything. Because I'd be out for two weeks before SummerSlam, recovering from my poison. Mm. Uh, Andrade uh, goes right into a right hand, and then Vega gets on the apron. Belair runs down, yanking her down, and... Dawkins hits his version of the Dominator called the Cash Out and wins in four minutes. And Tom Phillips proclaims Dawkins has achieved retribution for Montez Ford. Ooh, bad choice of words. Very insensitive, Tom. Yes. Well, oh, you're right. I didn't even understand the, uh, yeah, the retribution. But yeah, I guess a three count is equal to poisoning a man. We're Mm. equal. I guess in wrestling, I mean, three counts actually solve a whole lot. Like, they could solve custody issues. They could solve, um, uh, I don't know, the like, uh, sending somebody to hell. Um, three counts solve a whole lot. Yeah. They, I mean, they solved how to use Tank Abbott in the year 2000. Yes. Thanks. 
Just to recap, after Andrade and Garza lost their non-title match, we have now had Andrade lose in this uh, singles match. So their entire heat has been uh, an unknown poisoning to one of the champions. Which as, they didn't even commit. Which they are not even really attached to. It's Zelina that's got the the spotlight on her for the poisoning. So you could not put together two more lackluster challengers for these tag titles going into SummerSlam. I mean, they have done these two no favors. Yeah. Uh, this I mean, is a with nothing the, match. In two I mean, weeks. with the, this material, I think it's just, it was going to be difficult either way. Like they could have put, you know, the British Bulldogs in here with like a, a Legion of Doom and doing some sort of poisoning angle. I really don't know if that would have helped. So we go right into Zelina Vega and Bianca Belair. And this one goes over six minutes. Um, we had a crucifix into a triangle attempt by Vega. And Belair gets out and stops a sunset flip with a face buster. Uh, Vega then later hits the double knees. And Belair comes back. The KOD gets stopped. She does a big military press. And then Belair tosses her around. And then Belair runs into the post with her shoulder. But... Vega gets dropped on the buckle and this time hits the KOD, the kiss of death, to win in 6 minutes, 17 seconds. Tom Phillips at the top of his lungs. Retaliation for her husband. Retaliation, that's the other group. Yeah, so retribution and retaliation were both in full force here. So let's just get over this whole poisoning thing. They got two wins. Stop complaining, poison control. Uh, I thought a good little competitive match between these two, you know, getting to see Bel Air in these, you know, longer raw singles matches, I, I think is always a treat. Uh, she's still really fresh on this show right now, and I hope they take full advantage. Um, you had Zelina here. I thought she looked pretty decent, too. Um, she repeatedly was telling Bel Air, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. So you know she didn't do it. Yeah, I mean... It would be quite something if she had a confessional right in the middle of like a triangle sequence. Okay, okay. <laughs> I laced his drink. Charlie gets into the ring and asks Bianca, do you have any evidence? And Belair doesn't. She just says her and Montez or Tez stay out of each other's business. But Vega affected Ford's business, which I guess... They stay out of each other's business, but Vega affecting Ford's business has has now made Bianca's business Tez's business. I was trying to follow uh, this. Or this Tez's is, business, Bianca's business. I guess so. Dawkins says, don't worry. Tez is not going to miss the biggest party of the summer. Right. So thank God. Okay, cool. So, I mean, from what all of this suggests, I feel like the the poisoners are still out there. Wouldn't you think that retribution is like they've got yeah. the power supply? I'm sure they're like, you know, wouldn't that be dropping a letdown, shit in though? people's drinks and stuff? But wouldn't that be a letdown? Like we already know retribution. They they love their Molotov cocktails. They love flipping over cars. They love cinder blocks. Um, poison is not really their style. It feels like they want to be known for messing people up. Yeah, I mean, you got ninjas running around. Um... Who would poison? Hmm. Okay. It's a so long-term right. story. Yep. Why Why are you just trying to get an answer now, week week two? I think that's... that's. What do you say to that? There's a That's a blanket excuse, I think, for everything. Long-term story. Yeah. 
You got to wait. That that was always the one was uh, you got to wait for it to play out. Yes. The most recent example for that was uh, Charlotte in NXT. So after it's played out, can I talk shit about it then? Yes. So we should write down all these potential. <laughs> we should save this podcast, not release it till after the story. Yeah. I was released like 30 hours. In WWE, I give everything three weeks because that's their, that's their entire reference point. Like nothing exists beyond two or three weeks ago and nothing is probably thought of, or at least that you can commit to three weeks from now. Right. At least with any, any certainty. Like I'm sure there are many of ideas penciled in. Do we get to those? Well, we'll see. The VIP lounge MVP is not in a celebratory mood. He says there was a conspiracy with all the technical issues last week, and this is an unsafe working environment. The lights beat MVP, not Apollo Crews last week. So these guys should be pissed at retribution. Like, we know who is screwing with the lights. This is not a mystery. I guess retribution are, are tough to catch, right, at this point. They um, didn't even try. Yeah, instead they went to this raw underground where retribution clearly weren't. Or did he th- they thought the raw underground guys had to do with... The lights turning off? Okay. Is that it? It could have been, yeah. The ones that they just destroyed last week. Clearly not the case, because they left the underground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they I just thought they took. On. Yeah, I thought they took control of the underground. Yeah, they said it had new management, and this week it was old management. See, like, after last week, I think, like, I went off air, and so, at least some of us, like, went off air uh, from Raw thinking that, oh, okay, they're doing this whole underground thing as a way to push, um, what do they call this group? The hurt, the hurt business. The hurt business. Um, clearly not the case in week two. No, like that was the closing shot of Raw was them standing tall in the underground. And this week they had no connection to it. None. None. Apollo comes out. Uh, I thought very good uh, interplay here with MVP. MVP made fun of him for missing extreme rules. And Cruz just laughs because I'm holding the title you spent thousands of dollars on. MVP calls him a serial bad decision maker. Cruz says, I'm allowed to make bad decisions because I'm a bad man. (laughs) I don't care about Shelton. I don't care about Lashley. I just care about you. And the only lights going out at SummerSlam are going to be yours. And he just runs in and drops this dude and then tosses the couch to the floor. He looked uh, great here. No one. This guy just claimed the VIP lounge. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I thought, like, he's, every week now, he's kind of been showing a bit more um, uh, well-roundedness as, like, a promo. And this week, you got to hear him be very serious. I have to say, though, some of these lines um, definitely sounded a, l- a little bit unnatural and kind of corny. Um, but the I'm here lights to- going out are <laughs> yours. I'm allowed to be a bad man. What's What's the rest? <laughs> I've allowed to make bad decisions because oh. I'm a bad man. Okay. I don't know if that one holds up in court. Yeah. So I don't know about some of these lines, but uh, the delivery the delivery was really strong, I thought. Delivery is very good. Yeah. The the material, I mean, you could have like superimposed it with like a Kurt Angle 2001 promo. Apollo Crews and Shelton Benjamin, non-title match. Uh, Cruz is getting beaten down. He goes for the toss power bomb, but that is stopped. Cruz then hits a power slam, standing moonsault, and he goes to run the ropes. Lashley tries to trip him, but Cruz is onto his game, and he kicks him, but this allows Benjamin to do the roll-up from behind. All of his practice is 24-7 champion. He's got this roll-up down to a T, and he pins Cruz in 5 minutes and 11 seconds. Why? I don't know. 
fucking unbelievable <laughs> this booking like seriously the champions are not allowed oh. to win on this show i just i know like we just went through it didn't we just go through it a week ago on raw and then like you had smackdown with a bunch of uh, uh bullshit dqs and then back to this edition of raw where apollo cruz coming off of a championship win like finally beating mp mvp i, I almost said mp3 <laughs> finally <laughs> you kids and your mp3s <laughs> oh my god yeah so the way, <laughs> his big challenge at SummerSlam is going to be mp3 versus the wave the wave for, some, oh. for, for the at the beach <laughs> let's move on wave would be like way too uh, big okay well thank you um yeah like i don't i don't get this booking it's i under i do get at, it at best we're getting a rematch on raw next monday for the go home show like of Fine. But, but how does that make sense? Because like MVP is challenging. He already has a rematch with Apollo set for SummerSlam. Yes. So in between that, you're going to tell me that Shelton's going to be challenging for the belt now too. It would be another non-title match. That's just stupid. I like know. that's just. I know. A, they just not they, only is it confusing. It it, it hurts uh, Apollo greatly. It just takes away from everything. Again, they have a real issue when it comes to creating stars, and I'm sorry. It's not as hard as they make it out to be with like oh, all God, the stuff no. that you just, it makes, it's just th- this idea of guy wins, guy loses, uh, Mustafa Ali pins the champion. Then he gets beat by another guy the next week. So he never even gets a title match. It's like, it doesn't have to be so complicated. Pick your guys, make them look strong, have them go in as this unstoppable force. And people are soon going to be like, wow, this guy wins a lot. I should really cheer for this guy. Cause he's really good. I would prefer it if Apollo Crews won this match against Shelton Benjamin and then had his eye taken out so that you would want to see MVP. Or, fine, you want to do a rematch with Shelton? Have Shelton take his eye out. Great. I'll watch that rematch. Sure. I'd rather have that if it means Apollo Crews can actually get a win as a champion. It's Shelton Benjamin. Like, this guy is literally there to be an obstacle before you get to the bigger match. And... And Lashley is just, like, there. He just is there. Well, he's waiting. He's waiting for for a next big program. He's almost like the heavy that, like, Apollo is, like, saying. Or, sorry, MVP is saying, like, hey, uh, we can handle this. Well, Lashley goes for the full Nelson, and MVP says, hey, we can handle this. Keep him healthy for SummerSlam. We don't want him to miss SummerSlam with another injury. And then Cruz capitalizes with an enziguri on MVP and then he runs away with his title. So very strange. So they had him lose the match, but he lays out MVP. Yeah. Like to them, then enziguri is like an equalizer. Oh, he see he enziguri him. That means the win doesn't count. No, you just, it's like, uh, like that technique they would do in Batman where they'd bring you to the bat cave and then they would spray that stuff. So you forget how you got there and you just forget everything. That's what this was. Sure, yeah. This was the magic spray. This was Hunter's spray. Mm-hmm. Retribution is outside. Uh, <laughs> this is comical. Like, it's almost amazing this stuff made it to air. This goofball security guard who just, like, nominated himself for a Razzie Award with his acting comes in. No! Terry, no! Cinderblocks, No! And these idiots just throw the cinder block through the window and they go, yeah, yeah. What a <laughs> bunch of fucking dorks. 
This is the lamest group that they have introduced. Well, be, be I don't know. Lower than the ninjas. Like, that's where retribution is. Like, Ooh. they just, the lamest cartoon version of a group of protesters. Well, I, I, I feel like that this portrayal might be very intentional. I think they, obviously, they want to portray these people as villains, you know, who are ruining this show. Uh, never mind, like, the fact that protesters typically have something that they're actually fighting for. I mean, we don't know what what uh, retribution are fighting for yet, but the way they're portrayed certainly like makes them seem like they just like doing damage that they um, celebrate as if they're like dorks after every like breaking a glass door with a cinder block. Um, so I think the portrayal is like intentionally to make them seem incredibly juvenile and just idiots. So you think this is more of a, of a commentary on the act of protesting? I think the whole thing is. It's totally, like, so silly. Um, there was part of me that was waiting. <laughs> there was part of me that actually thought they were going to throw the cinder block and it was going to bounce off the, off the glass and hit them. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what this felt like uh, at the end of this thing. This, this angle sucks. It's really bad. There is, I don't think, any saving it. They don't even interrupt the show. Like, nothing they did tonight interrupt. We don't know whose car this was. It's like, who cares? Who cares what they did here? Yeah, well, I mean... Um... Caused a, caused a lot of flashes. Um, they they gave us an easy edit point to kick Ric Flair in the head. Like, that was their function tonight. Yeah. Sarah Schreiber is with the returning Mickey James, who has not wrestled since June of 2019. She is back, and she's got gold on her mind. And she gets interrupted by the matching twins, Lana and Natalia, in their identical dresses. Yeah, like it's been a while since I've seen Lana and, and Natalia together on, on Raw. I have no idea what like they've all of a sudden like I guess done, have done a lot of character development since then. Because last we saw, it, didn't they just like weren't they just like agreeing to be manager and wrestler? Mm-hmm. And yes. and then we saw N- Lana maybe that one week talking about Natalia. This week they show show up dressed the same. So uh, a lot's changed with these characters. They point out that, Mickey, you don't even have TikTok. And Natalia says, I am the best competitor. I am the most winning woman in WWE. I'm the Serena Williams of the WWE. And then Lana, a light bulb flashes over her head, says, best of all time. B-O-A-T. Hashtag, Mickey says that Natalia has rode the coattails of her family, and you know what they say about boats? They sink. See you next week. Good one. Nice. I actually think, like, hashtag boat, best of all time, is, like, a great, like, heel social media manager's idea of a good hashtag. You know? Yeah, I'm sure there was a strategy session about this to get this over. I'm looking about if like what the comments were for Boat tonight. Because I guess that is Lana's character right now. She is like a social media manager who is just incredibly obnoxious. And um, is Natalia supposed to be like, I don't know, um, the person being influenced by the social media? Or are these two more of like a, like a Paris Hilton, Nicole Richie type of, type of pair? Yeah, I think you're just going to get their these are going to be their uh their commentary on the impact of social media and how it defines your life. Oh, wow, okay. 
Yeah. Um... <laughs> Here are some. Natalia is the boat that always float. No wonder why she stays on top. Her ship isn't sinking anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got another one? Are, uh... There's not too many. I don't know how. I mean, there's there's some here, but this was. Uh, I, I don't know if this was. Uh... If Lana and Natalia were a boat, they'd be this. And they have attached a photo of the Titanic. So um, <laughs> the comedy was just uh, oozing out of Twitter uh, after this segment. But um, yeah, we will see. It looks like they'll do Natalia and Mickey next week on TV. Hey, that should be a great match. Should be very good. Okay, after that, uh, what was next? We had... Ivar. Ivar. Ivar was with this woman. Um, I guess every week we're just going to have women that are just out of context. We had the, who was it? Sarah on SmackDown. And then we had this woman who didn't even get a name. Was this was not just, the same woman as the, what is it? The bachelor? Was this the bachelor? I don't know. Demi? Maybe not. I, I don't think it was the they same They don't name one. them. Like, you know what? It might've been, I, it might've been actually Demi Burnett. It does look similar. So it may have been her again. Okay. Don't correct so, us. We don't care. It, Demi can correct us if she would like. Um, so she thinks that Ivar's pretty cute, but I've, uh, Eric, not so much. And Ricochet and Cedric are there and they laugh. They think this is hilarious. Uh, there's, there's a term about uh, a joke running its course. This one is like limping through references on, on Raw. I get it. Okay, this has been... A hilarious, hilarious inside joke that we uh, continue every week with with the Viking Raiders. I mean, it's 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 their main thing, you know. Like at this point, um, I they spent so much time on that best of Viking profits, Viking profits. Like uh, they made a T shirt for them. Oh man, they spent so much time like with those skits. Um, you you know, it really is like the biggest, most notable thing either team has done thus far. <laughs> I guess other than getting poisoned in Montez Ford's case while they've been in the WWE. So it's it's their sole identity right now. If you go back to February of 2019 when Ricochet was called up and we fast forward a year and a half later, it is Ricochet, Cedric Alexander, and the Viking Raiders who were also called up around the same time. And this is also August 10th, the anniversary of Cedric doing that cruiserweight classic where he was awarded a contract by Triple H. So, wow. man, some some really uh, monumental moments for these four. Taking on Akira Tozawa and the ninjas. What a journey it's been. Yeah, I mean, this has been what what a roller coaster. And man, if Kota Ibushi, they, they've already won. Can you imagine if Kota Ibushi signed, <laughs> he would be one of like he would be a great ninja. Really, he'd be an awesome ninja. Zack Saber Jr. Wow. Yeah. I'd love like I'd love to like peer in some sort of alternate timeline where Kota Ibushi and Zack Saber Jr. agreed to WWE contracts where they would end up in this fucked up Oh, Zack would definitely be a part of retribution, I feel. Yeah. Uh I mean my God. Like talk about guys that had Great. He'd be. Yeah, you know, we joked about this. We've already made this joke, but it's still funny. He would be skinny Z, of course. <laughs> skinny Z. <laughs> did we make that joke before? I think we did. Yeah. Oh, it's pretty good. 
Uh, this one, a minute and 11. It's a ricochet do the crane. Viking experience for the win. Who cares? One of the ninjas wouldn't tag in. He then rolled up Tozawa, won the title. It's our truth. It's his 38th title win. Yeah. I don't. I guess, like, USA still really likes this 24-7 thing because... Um, I mean, talk about a this, joke. This was a Band-Aid a year and a half ago that they brought in. That this, long this ago? Was, this was their third hour idea, was this crazy 24-7 title. Oh, my God. Yeah. And it's like, it, it really peaked with the Drake, Maver- Drake Maverick stuff. And since then, it's just been week after week of the same thing with little effort put into it. How do we get this guy to, you know, small package? They brought in Mick Foley to introduce this. Oh, man. Charlie is with Drew McIntyre. He says Randy doesn't help the young talent and takes out legends for self-preservation to make sure he's on top as long as he can. Orton ripped the torch from Mick Foley, and once he lets go of the torch, he will be a thing of the past. So at SummerSlam, he's going to rip the torch from Orton because evolution has passed him by. But then Charlie has a follow-up. What if Kevin Owens rips the torch from Orton tonight? Drew says, well, then me and Kevin will have a long conversation about the future of Raw. What yeah. does it mean to take the torch? Um, To take the torch. Okay. Like it, it's, it, not, it's not just beating a guy because yeah. Orton's lost plenty. He's had this torch for 16 years. Okay. The idea of like passing the torch when used in like kayfabe terms and pro wrestling. I mean, it's always been one of those terms that have really kind of blurred the lines between reality and fiction, hasn't it? Because in kayfabe, Drew should be like the he should be the guy. Oh yeah, it, like okay, let's say in MMA, to say that you've taken the torch or, or like to say somebody, oh, you could still say pass the torch. It just like it just means like you have to win it, like legitimately. You know, you know what I mean? a perfect example would be the two fights Max Holloway had with Jose Aldo, where mm-hmm. he had become champion, but then he beat Jose Aldo again, and it really cemented him as, you know, the either on par as the greatest featherweight of all time or surpassing Aldo until he See, faced Alexander Volkanovsky. So, so can you think of an example where somebody can willingly stop the torch from being passed in a real sport? In a real sport? Well, yeah. you, you don't get uh, beaten. Like in, in real sports, like it, it culminates in like uh, – uh, the, the next the the star of the next generation like unseating the the previous one like yeah. uh in sports like a major record being broken yeah so in the context in, the, in of- this fantasy world of pro wrestling it's kind of like what what are we measuring this on like and Mick Foley like what torch did he have to hand to Randy Orton yeah, no, it's uh, it's one of those things that I think has just been accepted that like hey wink wink we know what you're really talking about but. We're gonna, and we're how gonna... could Kevin Owens end up with this torch by the end of tonight? Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. What if, what if Kevin Owens had come out and he saw some rolled up papers, a la the Dark Order, in the back of Randy's trunks, took it, and it was the torch? And he got Randy over the, the, over the head. Pass me this week's edition of the torch. <laughs> Randy, it's the key to it all. That Randy Orton is just such a hog. Every week he, get, he gets a he gets it from Wade and just holds on to it and just holds on to it. Liv Morgan took on Peyton Royce. 
I think we just made sense of the entire angle. Yeah. Like the none of the WWE locker room know how to read digitally. They just have to rely on hard copies. Yes. Liv Morgan came out with Ruby Riot. They're all buddies again. Uh to take on Peyton Royce. And the iconic said, The Riots, they're back and better than ever. Which I thought was the theme of uh Dynamite last week with Eric Bischoff. Ah, classic song. They have been shaping their futures, and their futures are remarkable. Mm, Two R's. Yeah. Uh, Morgan drove Royce's face into the apron, then walked into a spin kick. They do a double head kick, and both go down. Ruby stops Billy Kay from interfering, but in the process of doing this, confuses Liv, who is watching Ruby, and allows Peyton to hit her from behind and win with the deja vu in two minutes and two seconds, and Liv is all annoyed at Ruby for costing her the match. So there is trouble in paradise between so that, the recently rehabilitated friendship of Pey- of Liv Morgan and Ruby Riot. So, so that's what Peyton Royce ended up calling that, like, spinning brain buster? Yes, they called it the deja vu. Feel like there were better suggestions than that. Um, the Rolls Royce is perfect, don't you think? Kind of been taken now, hasn't it? That term by what? By Baker, by Bert Baker. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Damn it. All right, Deja. You know what she should is? call it? What? The Royce Grace. <laughs> uh, Peyton Hoyce. This is terrible. This is a terrible podcast. Okay, uh, so yeah, to- you know, uh, you know, totally fine match. I thought between these two, like in the cases of like where where storyline actually progresses, and I don't think either person really has a whole lot to lose. I really don't mind these sort of distraction finishes. To me, this served a purpose. It advanced the story here. You think R- Liv and Ruby are reunited, but they're not exactly on the same page yet. Yeah, maybe they'll need Paige to get them on the same page. Um. Was that the team? No, no that Paige was, was with Sonya. Sonya and Mandy. She's got to get involved somehow. Paige? Maybe. Yeah, don't you think? She should. Paige, I really like Paige when she was a general manager. And now that backstage is done, I hope they find a role for her. Because I thought she was very, very, very good in that uh, that speaking role on SmackDown. Yeah. Uh, did you happen to see this Twitch angle that they did on... Um... I only I only heard about it. I didn't yeah, actually see too. it. Did it did it come off okay? Uh, no, I I only oh, heard about it, it too. But yeah. I thought it was an interesting idea. It was uh, uh, sorry, I forget I forget who it was. A Bianca and Zelina. Yes, yes, you're right. Bianca showed up to Zelina's Twitch stream and attacked her for poisoning her husband. I like the idea. Like maybe it came off campy. I didn't see it, but I I don't I don't mind that as an idea. This totally should be AJ's angle though. Like that is the Twitch stream to. Uh, to infiltrate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at least a promo battle of some sort. Mr. Styles. Paul Heyman here. <laughs> they can just have a Twitch debate. Paul Heyman on Twitch? Yeah. Paul Heyman with, with AJ Brock Lesnar on Twitch, really. Oh, that could be something. <laughs> you know, I rewatched the first uh, Daniel Cormier-Stipe fight from two years ago, and... <laughs> Man, had I forgotten Brock's promo after that fight, where that was the big talking point was we're going to get Brock and Cormier coming out of that. And you've got Brock who just gets in there. He's got his big cowboy boots on and the dude's just towering over Cormier. 
and Rogan interviews him. He's like, look at this heavyweight piece of shit picture I just stepped into. And God, who's a piece of shit. Stipe is a piece of shit. And Daniel Cormier, you're a piece of shit. <laughs> and then he just like throws the mic at like the camera. It's like, this guy was just, uh, what a... What a piece of work this guy was. Oh <laughs> like God, if, if you're if you are not following WWE, I totally get why there would be a significant amount of people who would just be like, "This fucking guy is just too much." <laughs> yeah, I could see that too. But I mean, as a wrestling fan, I love I love it. I thought he was so great. They had a window to do that fight, but I, I think that uh, by now has certainly passed. But I, I think like it. It quickly moved on. There were just w- way more interesting fights to me for Cormier. WrestleMania 38. You could always do the wrestling match. Like, I do feel Cormier does something with WWE at a point. I feel like he'll definitely get an offer. Hey, at this point, with Kane not in the mix, maybe yeah. it's not WWE he wants to do. Maybe he wants to do something elsewhere. Um, Him and Kane should be the tag team. Interesting. What? Are you suggesting another company? Well, it's... Hmm. Hey, there was a bidding war for, for Kane. Hmm. And he's do you not see with Kane, one of them. Do you see Kane going to... Um, like an AEW. I see Kane definitely revisiting pro wrestling. Yeah, I do but think. I also see him. Um, AEW would certainly be near the top of the list, but I could see him doing AAA as well when they get back on their feet. Um, hmm. like he's Kane's been working with Cormier for this whole camp leading up to the fight uh, with oh. Stipe. So okay. I mean, he's been he's been in the gym uh, and been busy, but I t- like that was a guy that you could see he was doing pro wrestling because he genuinely. Love doing it and not because, you know, he got a great offer from WWE, but it was, you know, all his stuff pre WWE that had all the buzz going. And that buzz has really dissipated after the, the WWE experiment. How crazy, like in the past like year, just nuts. W- WWE had signed Kane Velasquez. They had signed, uh, what the fuck, that football player, Gronk. Oh, yeah, Gronk. Yeah. And both those guys. They're both gone. gone. Yeah. Yeah. This was a year ago. Right now, we were talking about Kane coming off of Triple Mania when I would say his buzz was at uh, a peak for pro yeah, wrestling. You do a few Hurricane Ranas, you get a bunch Hurricane of Hurricane Ranas. Oh, yes, yes. Not my creation, but time for Raw Underground. Big Jordan lets Shane into the lair, and that's his job now. He went from a ninja to a security guard. One of many roles, I'm sure, uh, of what I'm sure will be a great long-lasting career our first fight was cal bloom the son of wayne bloom one of the 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 beverly brothers oh and an an extra taking on riddick moss former 24 7 champion and this starts well before 10 p.m well before meaning like you know six seven minutes before which i would just say you're advertising 10 o'clock like if people were tuning in for 10 o'clock they missed this whole thing yeah, that was a little strange. I mean, you can't necessarily advertise nine fifty six. Uh, that would be a, a little awkward. But you know, they uh, they clearly wanted to get people to watch Raw Underground at ten o'clock. But they also wanted to have Bailey versus Oscar at ten o'clock. Bloom takes him down. Shane's commentary is awful. Like he is an MMA fan out of two thousand seven, yelling, "Stand him up! Stand him up!" He's like, "Ooh, Alex, ooh, what ah." It, when is Phil Nurse going to show up to the underground? Probably. Yeah. Uh, Henzo would be way better on commentary. Boss Rutten and Henzo doing commentary. And then 
John Danaher can't be that far behind. Danaher would fuck dudes up in this underground. The issue (laughs) with a man like Cal is the bloom comes off the rose. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This match had... (laughs) They went to the floor. I can't believe you're actually going to recap this match. With I'm teams. trying. I'm trying. Please, There's I... no rules as they go into the walls. <laughs> and then Riddick Moss just gouges this dude's fucking eye, headbutts him, and just stomps the shit out of him for the stoppage. And then he says, can you see me now? Oh, God, I missed that. Yeah. <laughs> can you see me now? <laughs> His opponent couldn't. No, he couldn't. No, yeah. you could not see me. Um. Big he, win for Riddick Moss. Like, I have to say, like, you know. Listen, they are taking people. And, like, if you can get past, like, the awful aesthetic and very... Um, the setting, I think, works huh. against it. The camera angles are just... Like, the cuts are just very, very WWE bad. But yeah. at their core, like, they're giving you short squash matches in as serious a form as WWE can get in 2020, which in... This this day and age is eye gouges, stomping, and killing a man. When you watch like the types of matches, I, I feel like there's little difference between like what you see here with even the like, Riddick Moss and like seeing what the type of match like Killer Cross is having on NXT. Like it's a similar style, and in the end, you have a guy like look like a legitimate you know fighter at uh, uh, you know. So I I'm not saying Riddick, Riddick Moss is like on that level, but. This is certainly better for Riddick Moss than any 24-7 match could have been for him. Any association with the 24-7 title could have been. However, all that said, there is no indication that anything that these guys do on Raw Underground is more than a one-off. Like, no Drew, no Dolph Ziggler on this show. No uh, Eric as a part of this whole thing. No Hurt Business even. So it's not like we have, you know, two weeks in, any sort of semblance of an actual league of Raw Underground guys. These just more feel if you like casual like one off vignettes at this point. We didn't have the the dancing women in this, did we? I think they. Yeah, I didn't really notice. Were them. they there? I mean, they, I'm sure they were there because this was the same set. But this was all the same taping, but so there was no, it would not no seem like that. I yeah, noticed. which I, I think like that was pretty universally panned last mm-hmm. week. So I, I think next week is more interesting because then it'll be okay. What criticism have they taken to heart, and what adjustments do they make to this? Because this and last week were really the pilot uh, form of this, yeah. but I am curious to see what they do next week. And do they like, I, I would expect next week they're going to promote something like one of these fights for SummerSlam, like shoot some angle. Uh, Cause I do see this being part of SummerSlam. Hey, let me ask you like, so is there something when you're underground that prevents the spread of novel coronavirus? Because no. no. why do the extras need to all wear masks when they're up in the arena, but when they're down in the underground, it's optional. This is like the Sturgis rally. They're willing to take no a rules. risk. Yeah, I see. They're all they're all stars. <laughs> yeah, smash mouth coming down here. Yeah, Bailey and Oscar. Let's go over the premise here. Oscar has to beat the SmackDown Women's Champion in order to get a Raw Women's Championship shot. Yes. Completely ludicrous, but... Outrageous. Nonetheless, let's just throw that out the window. Asuka attacks her immediately, uh, and then hits a German and a hip attack, drops her off of the corner. We go through the commercial break. Asuka's high kick gets caught, and 
Bailey applies a knee bar and starts attacking the ankle. Banks would also get involved attacking the ankle behind the referee's back. Oscar would recover, applying an octopus, and then transition to an arm bar into a cover. Bailey transitions out of that to an Indian deathlock. Oscar then counters to a knee bar. She's torquing on it. Bailey suplexes her way out, but Oscar lands on top of her. Some really great like transitions. Then Oscar hits the code breaker, which in WWE vernacular, oh, double knee strike for a two count. Bailey then hits a top rope elbow and hits the Judas effect in WWE vernacular elbow. And then a sunset bomb sends her into the corner and Bailey starts mocking Kyrie Sane by marching to the corner and charges at Oscar and gets caught with the Oscar lock and is forced to tap out. Uh, I thought these two had a, a really strong match. Yeah. Ignoring the fact that like the circumstances are that Bailey is your SmackDown champion put in as just a, uh, you know, obstacle for your other champion. I really liked this. It was a really good match for TV. A lot of really cool submission exchanges. Really, really fast and intense pace. And Oscar, uh, to me, has just been on fire. Bailey, really, too, has been on fire. Um, it's just unfortunate the booking has kind of made her real joke, like losing to both Kyrie and to Oscar. Well, champions have to lose on this show. Uh, in non-title scenarios. I'll tell you, like, uh, aside from the match, my other highlight of this was hearing the extras for some reason chanting, we will rock you. So not only are they doing... They're doing that. Somebody starts singing the lyrics to the song. Like, <laughs> they're doing the whole oh, thing. I hope this clip gets flagged on YouTube tomorrow for that. And I just have no idea why. It's not like, you know, either of these characters. Maybe some of them, one of them thought Asuka was Emi Sakura or something. Like, <laughs> none of these wrestlers have any, anything to do with Queen. But, like, my only reasoning is that these guys must be so miserable and so bored. They're trying to entertain themselves at this point with anything. Listen, I... I, I do have a lot of sympathy for these and extras that have to stand for God knows how long. And like, this would be so annoying to have to do so many times. Cause it's a lot of the same faces we see, but I'm getting really annoyed by some of like the cat calling and like yelling over people's promos. Like it's, well, I, was I understand. I was the entertained by this. Some of it gets more Freddie Mercury, some of it, if, less cat calling. I mean, when, when if someone gets like the right line in, like, Eye for an eye match. Uh, some of them can be funny, but at other times it can just be like, it just seems like they don't, they're entertaining themselves, which oh, yeah. sometimes hits, but other times misses for me. So you want generic fan crowd noise? Is that it, John? I want to press a button and hear cheers. And I want to press another button to hear. Boots. I tried to listen. Like I, I tried to watch the, so John is referring to what new Japan has been trying out, at least for their last show where, they're encouraging fans to download an app, and you can download a mail app. <laughs> I guess in the app, there's like a male version and a female version where you can like press a button to boo or cheer. So I tried to listen to to this to it on the show. And I couldn't really find where they might have used it. I don't know if you noticed, but it's a great idea. I imagine it's like that old WWF microphone you could buy when you were a kid, and it had like the one, two, three on the side of it. It's like boo. With our, yeah, our phones and then we get a mixture of them. Our phones really loud enough to like be picked up like that. I guess when you have a bunch at the same time. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Like it's. I, I'm open for any kind of different ideas. Uh, if it would work or not. Um, Where's the "you deserve it" button? 
<laughs> Fight forever. Okay. <laughs> Back to Raw Underground, and we got Arturo Huas in his jeans. Oh, come on. You can't, you can't be edgy wearing a proper wrestling clothes. What are you, John? Over 50? Come on. Get into the the demo. Get into the prime demo. We don't wear uniforms. Did you watch the opening couple of minutes of being the elite? It was very funny. I uh, briefly, yeah, I think I watched it on two times. But Ugh. they, man, they really just uh, tore apart the like the Dexter Loomis spot and just the man. They really just took the, their digs at NXT. It was, uh, I mean, it was entertaining, but nonetheless, uh, Arturo Huas here just. Uh, like this is a guy who has mm. like it's like a capoeira background mm. and you know they were talking about his grappling he hit this spinning wheel kick that sent this dude to the floor slammed him Shane's yelling stand him up and it uh, hits him with a spinning wheel kick knockout a la Edson Barbosa to Terry Edom and the guy died yeah I mean, I'll say, like, I think their choices of people to feature on these underground things has been really good. Um, even, like, seeing somebody like Riddick Moss, like, do some uh, some of his, like, amateur wrestling stuff, I thought was really great. And obviously seeing Arturo Hura, somebody with a very legitimate background, seeing him do capoeira and just, I don't know, do, do a bit of MMA. Like, I was compelled, but I'm also sp- speaking as a fan of, like, Bloodsport in this particular style. Um, so I enjoyed it. Uh, did it work for you? I mean, I, I feel like what they are, I will take this in terms of, okay, here are several people that we have ideas for because the regular way has resulted in Akira Tozawa of Shorty G Mm -hmm. of Ricochet. Like I will take this more serious approach to guys that are just murdering dudes um, as, as opposed to the rank-and-file way of which we introduce someone, they go 50-50, they get some goofball gimmick because you can't just be a strong wrestler. You need some character attached to you. And then you're fighting for the 24-7 title. Yeah. In trying to, like, replicate a very cliched, you know, idea of what a fight club looks like, they might have inadvertently, like, stumbled onto the idea of making new debuts look strong. Yeah, and to all the negativity that last week brought... Like if I if this had been a live show this week and I saw those numbers last week, you know, I would take some of that criticism to heart, but at the same time, I would not be tinkering to it to such a degree that I I don't know what those people that tuned in felt about that third hour. I don't want to completely change it in case I'm on to something here. And people may complain about it, but you also have to take in the over the, the overarching data that you have to find out like is there some legs to this or was that a one-week phenomenon last week and it crashes back down to earth this week we don't know but you have to try Mm -hmm. then we had our man dabakato dabakato master wato dream match oh fuck there we go folks dabakato he uh sweeps this dude these, they've been very careful as well that they do not identify the dudes getting killed. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's because um... maybe they're they're feeling like this is going to uh, uh, taint them in the viewers' eyes. Which I mean, how about a fake name it's... then? 
what they used yeah, to do. You can come up with a fake name. It comes off to me kind of like I feel you're. It comes off more contrived when you're not even identifying the participants. It's yeah. it's one guy where it's this exhibition. So he, <laughs> as we try and talk about <laughs> no, any kind yeah, of serious, I take it all here, back. I take it back. He hits his knees from the clinch, and then he grabs the dude by the testicles and drops him <laughs> with the right hand. And this, I don't know, any seriousness attached to the Dabakato was out the window for me with this. This was just so ridiculous. This was, yeah. to me, like Vince McMahon's idea of what fighting looks like. Like, this is real fighting. Why wouldn't you grab him in the balls? <laughs> that would stop anybody. I guess that's what makes pro wrestling interesting, John. You have uh, you know, real people with legitimate backgrounds, and then you have big dudes grabbing other dudes by the balls. Um, this was the one I hated the most of these little exhibitions they had. It was the most cartoonish one, yes. Yeah, totally silly. They're also spelling Daba-Kato. Daba uh, good. Important distinction. Then Shayna Baszler enters and has a face-off with Daba-Kato, but uh, Yabba-Daba... Gets out of there. And Shayna just yanks up a woman from the floor and starts beating the piss out of her. Another woman runs in. And then a third one. The third one was Emily Anzulis, who is one of uh, the PC talents. And Shayna just pretty much takes out these three, uh, dropping them, throwing them, and then a Kirafuda clutch for the submission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, if you were just looking at this as a way to promote Shayna Baszler by having her destroy three random jobbers, I thought it was a good way to promote Shayna to showcase like, you know, her style uh, that she really excels at doing. I think from, you know, the time we saw it yesterday, a lot of us felt like, yeah, this was a perfect setting for a wrestler like Shayna Baszler for her to be able to show her thing. I overall like found this match and really some of the ones prior to this more engaging than your typical like meaningless raw match. Uh, I don't know if this is a novelty about it for me, but to me, the bigger question is, is this just, are these just one-offs or are we actually trying to build storylines with some of these people? Maybe Shayna is, maybe you could do the explanation. Nia Jax is suspended, but they can have an underground match at SummerSlam. Okay. Uh, interesting. Interesting. They have yet to do that. They've yet to do have like, you know, like star versus star or at least like real performer, versus, like two people, two people with names. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm intrigued to see what they do next week with this. Like how, like, cause I think if the third hour does relatively well tomorrow that we could see like the WWE tried and true, we've got a winning formula and let's just run it to death next week. And it's all over the show. Mm, yeah. I think they need to be careful to limit this. And for all we know, it, it like week two may not hold up uh, that week one did. What's your sense of the interest level? Do you think it was a novelty last week? Uh, certainly, like there's a great deal of curiosity attached to it. And I think a lot of people, judging by the reaction, were really turned off. So I don't think they'll be tuning back in again. So I expect the number to be lower. Does that mean that it's not worth continuing the experiment? I personally don't think so. I think like trying something different is what you need right now discard what doesn't work and keep what works. And I watching this week, I feel like there were certain things that absolutely worked. Yeah. I mean, I could see them tinkering before they drop it completely, but there will come a point where, I mean, if they don't feel it's, it's hitting, we'll, we'll never hear of this thing again, but we'll see, see. This thing is so different though, from like, you know, like a wild card rule or even like, I don't know, a 24 brand to brand invitational. 
yeah, like they put effort into creating the set and everything. I feel like they're like it's got a head somewhere. Like the Shane has really yet to explain himself why he started doing this. You know, like is this a part of a bigger story or is it just like, hey, here's a different arena for different types of matches? Retribution tipped over a car. Yep. Randy Orton accompanied by Ric Flair versus Kevin Owens. Early on, the stunner and RKO are attempted and blocked, and Owens hits him with a super kick, cannonball on the floor. They go through the commercial. Owens uh, is nursing a bad shoulder and has run into the steps as Flair is yelling at him. Orton is stomping on him inside the ring. Owens comes back, hits him with the senton, and then Orton avoids the pop-up powerbomb and drops Owens onto the announcer's desk. Owens then headbutts him off the turnbuckle, preventing a superplex, hits the senton, and then or- uh, Owens does the RKO setup and goes for the stunner, which is countered into the RKO, and Randy gets the clean cover. The right finish to do. That's what this was for. Owens is the setup guy, and Orton gets a clean victory. I thought a pretty strong match uh, on, mm-hmm. a, on a TV show, on, on an edition of Raw. Some really good, clean heel work from Orton here. Pace, I thought, was really strong. It was not your typical, you know, slower, methodical Orton match. And I have to imagine, you know, uh, Owens being here is is a big part of uh, uh, of that. So um, it sets him up, like, for a title match. Afterward, Flair raises Orton's arm, and Orton gets on the mic and tells Rick to stay put. We go to commercial. We come stay back. Stay through the commercial. Is yes, what just stay put. Which I would have thought they might have called Rick at home and told him that, but... They did not. Orton says he has every right to be pissed at Rick, but he just can't. The match against Kevin Owens tonight was unnecessary. It only happened because of Flair's ego last week that led to this match being set up. He's learned so much from Rick. He grew up watching him. Flair has always had his back. And one of the reasons that Randy is still here 20 years later, he brings up an incident from 2002-2003 in Peoria, Illinois, where he got in trouble and Flair was the only one to bail him out. He loved Flair after that. But I don't respect you anymore. I don't love you anymore because you're a liability to me and my career and what I'm trying to get done. Orton says that Flair followed him because he wanted the son he wished he had. And I thought this was certainly treading into territory. I did not want to see them go into like bringing up Rick, Rick's sons. Like uh, to me, I just did not want to hear them go into this. Yeah. Um, that was the extent of the line, but uh, still it was like, he, he is referring to like, you know, a time when like Reed was still alive. Yeah. I mean, you know, Rick, but, but still like the, the image that, that it brings up is, you're you're referencing you're referencing you know david but especially reed you are bringing reference to and Mm -hmm. i just think like what a um what what a traumatic subject for you know for for any time period much less having to use this for for a wrestling promo he goes on to make fun of rick flair who's always crying and says that the rick flair he knew wouldn't need a pacemaker or fall into a coma He's a whore for the spotlight. He's washed up and you can't do it anymore. Flair takes the microphone and says, I'm taking this very personally. He says that the Flair he came to see 
in 2001, he's not here anymore. Yes, I like the spotlight. Yes, I call you the greatest, Randy. I'm on Raw, and it's the greatest feeling in the world. Hulk Hogan calls me up to ask me what it's like, and he wants to be here to see Randy win his 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th title and break his record. Not John Cena and that bullshit record. Orton knows what Flair went through on the road because your dad went through that road schedule. You, Randy, are the greatest performer in the business today. And I can't get mad because after 31 days in intensive care, I woke up and all I wanted out of my life was to tell the people I had not told that I loved them and that everyone that I've loved knew how I felt and I phoned up everyone that mattered. And I'm not trying to take anything away from you. I'm just playing Charlotte's dad and being here in your corner. And Randy then grabs Rick and hugs him and then gets down and low blows Rick. And Rick goes down. Randy whispers into his ear and then sets up in the corner for the punt kick. The lights go dark. Then they come back on. And as Randy winds up for the punt kick, the lights go dark. And when they come back on, Rick is unconscious. And finally, Drew McIntyre runs down. Flair is being tended to. And Drew is just staring a hole through Randy Orton and says, everything is coming to you, Randy, at SummerSlam. I'm going to hurt you. And they just look back and forth for a long period of time. And this was our closing segment and the end of Ric Flair. Yeah. Um, I thought it was a great segment. Um, you know, I I think a lot of us had felt that Orton could very well be in his prime as a performer right now. And we saw glimpses of like how Flair looked in these backstage segments, but I thought this was like, you know, the biggest role that Rick's had in like years. And it required a different level of uh, emotion from him, a different level of just acting from him. And I thought he was right up there with Randy Orton. This was was excellent. Top performance from Flair, perhaps like his best in years. Um, so now that this is done, okay, this says, you know, the, the story is over, so we can comment on it. Like, I understand why Ric Flair needed to be there every single week, because they wanted to establish that Flair and Orton are in the midst of this kind of ongoing relationship, and uh, you needed to excuse, like, Flair for wanting to basically be a hanger-on, according to Randy Orton, because he can't, you know, say goodbye to the spotlight. There are so many questions. Um that we have to continue to ask, like, is it, is this worthwhile? Like, is it worthwhile for, to bring Ric Flair in for all these weeks to lead up to this particular segment? I mean, I don't, I don't even necessarily have those answers right now, but um, I I don't think you can justify, you know, someone with those health problems, like no wrestling angle justifies that to me. Yeah. Yeah. You can still Uh, enjoy this angle. Like this was like a really phenomenal segment and Rick was great and Randy was great. And it, Builds on the story of Randy destroying everyone that was close to him, and he's isolated himself from everybody. Everyone's gone. Um, you know, you can appreciate the story while at the same time um, be, you know, concerned about not just the fact of Rick's health problems, but the fact that, you know his wife came down with COVID. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a, a million warnings that you know make it uneasy that I no great segment can justify to me. Sure. Yeah, I I don't disagree there either. Um, but um, 
it, this is what they had planned uh, seemingly from the get-go. Establish a relationship with, you know, in 2020 between Flair and Norton on screen so that by the end of it, you can have the turn feel that much more effective. Um, you know, like if this was a one-off and Flair just showed up this week, like for the first time, having this segment with Orton and Orton still punt kicked him, I think it would have still been effective, but it wouldn't have been as effective. I, I will give him that. Uh, but, you know, it's risk reward. It, it wasn't worth it. All that said is they, they went with it and the end result was really strong. Orton was fantastic. Flair was fantastic. If we're going to poke holes, it would certainly be in where the fuck was Drew McIntyre? Why did it take so long for him to come in? And why did it take so long for the MTs to run in? Um, they could have like, I feel like they could have had Drew come in, stop the punt, but then get laid out by Orton anyway. So Orton continues to go ahead with the punt while Drew watches ringside. Like something like that. They, they've might been have, so been careful perfect. with Drew that I don't think they want to put him in any kind of weak light. That but he, doesn't this make him look worse? I, I I thought it was too late. Like they, there I think is like that amount of time that you can make it reasonable, but it was beyond that. Like this was such a slow, methodical setup for the punt that by the time Drew, like I would have complained more if Drew didn't show up because to me that's like a larger uh, gap, but. The fact it was so late, it's impossible to ignore that. And again, like that's where it doesn't take all the creativity in the world to explain that, you know, this is a closed set. Drew was not just backstage. He was several, he was outside the building and got like, you can come up with reasons and all it takes is a line or two from your announcers to explain like Drew is, you know, he's in a bus that's, you know, 400 feet away from the building. It's not everyone's hanging out backstage in this environment. He was in the underground. You can come up with different reasons, but WWE does not look at those details too often. And it's just sort of, you're left to explain it yourself. And See, they do, but they don't. Like, sometimes they will go out of the way to explain something that I don't think any of us would have really thought about. And then other times, yeah, this would be. But I feel like something like this would be worth addressing, like, in the the next week, the next time we, like, Drew McIntyre himself in a promo. Maybe he does. Um, I will say, though, I I thought the the segment was very strong. And I feel that this match feels like a big main event for a big pay-per-view with Drew and Randy. I agreed. I think all the major uh, principal players in this feud so far have been fantastic. I mean, this is a great way of taking the Randy Orton that you've built through this edge program and translating him to meet your top baby face that you're trying to promote in Drew McIntyre, who's also been on fire really lately. Uh, the big tests to me like have been, you know, can Drew McIntyre stand up to the level of performer that Randy Orton is? And the answer has been yes. Not only has Drew been able to do that, but Ric Flair has been able to do that. So everybody, all three people here have been operating at like very, very high levels. So yeah, I agree with you. Very strong. I would say the strongest points of Raw, I, I thought the Dominic angle was was very strong. The closing angle, extremely strong. Um, those would be the highlights uh, for me on the show tonight. And Bailey and Asuka. Uh, agreed there. I, I thought Owens Orton was a good match as well. Um and then a whole lot of other stuff. Okay, we've been going long, so let's uh, zip through feedback. Tonight on the forum, you gave the show a 5.5. Paul from New Jersey writes, I enjoyed the Seth Rollins promo. Him, Joe, and Dominic played off each other well. I actually liked the poisoning angle. Apollo has found a new gear, and the Natty Lana pairing works well. Rick Shane, the Viking Raiders are still booked like dorks, so some things never change. 
Uh, Raw Underground gets a thumbs up, but Retribution comes off like the jobber orphan gang from the movie The Warriors. What Which match are you more intrigued by come SummerSlam weekend, Dominic versus Rollins or McAfee versus Adam Cole? I'm very intrigued by Pat McAfee. Um, I'm actually a bit more interested in Dominic and Rollins. I think it's been built up much, much better. Yeah. Though I don't discount that Cole and McAfee is, is going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think both it, matches will be laid out very well. Who's Who had the better punt? Um... I, th- I thought the Cole one was almost too silly. Um, I, the Orton one, we really didn't get to assess tonight. I mean, it was it, right. was, it was dark. It was too sure. dark. Okay, we got Andrew from Cape Breton who says, what will Retribution do next? They've already broken glass and flicker, <laughs> flickered the lights. Maybe they'll throw toilet paper around the performance center. That would be horrible to clean up. Oh. Raw was <laughs> Raw was okay tonight. I enjoyed Seth Rollins and his segment with Dominic. A lot of the cycle has been pretty good, except for the whole fake eye thing. I liked Randy Orton in the final segment, even though Drew McIntyre was very late. As for Raw Underground, you can tell who is good in this style and who isn't. I wasn't a fan of the first match with Rick, Rick Moss and Cal Bloom as it came off as just a regular wrestling match. I think that's why they need to establish more rules and what makes this different from regular matches inside a WWE ring. I also found the camera cuts really noticeable. During the Arturo Huas match, I was trying to watch it and it was so difficult to pay attention. I like that style of wrestling when it's done right. And that's going to be the, the the bigger challenge is when this, like, you're trying to get these performers over, like, how does this translate when they're on Raw, for instance? Like, are they doing this same style when they're in a WWE match? Like, how how do you make that transition, which is a ways off, but that's that should be the goal. Like, you can't just keep these people uh, in their Raw underground bubble. I wonder if, like, these are questions that, like, like, what is the end goal of a Raw Underground? You know, is it to try to elevate somebody, like, no pun intended, to, like, the main stage? Um, is it just something cool to try out? I don't know. I, I, I think it's, I would like to say it's trying to create some new stars, but I think the principal reason is this is a, this is a Band-Aid. This is to curb, you know, this is all about television viewership. Right. Uh, from John Sino, plot twist. Angelo Dawkins was the one who poisoned Montez Ford. Why else would they keep this mystery going? I feel like they see Montez as a bigger single star, and this is the way to propel him in that direction. I mean, it would make no sense, for one. Yeah, it would make very little sense. Uh, but My tag team championship partner, I'm going to poison. <laughs> uh, yeah, it would make no sense. And I think it would also be death for Angelo Dawkins. No, it would um, be death for Montez Ford, potentially. Both of them, really. Like one would get poisoned, the other would be have a. a I don't know if he, if I would like if Dawkins is a single star at, right now. I I can't see them breaking up the Street Profits just yet. I think it's too early, but that's an interesting theory, John Cena. Alexander from the Portland Underground, who says the directing at the end made Orton McIntyre feel like an anime fight scene about to happen. I've never been a big fan of Orton as top champion, but right right now he seems like the perfect man for it. If Brock is going to be gone for the foreseeable future, Orton has the number one heel, as the number one heel makes sense. Hopefully a title reign could let us see him in a cinematic match to redeem his haunted house with Bray Wyatt. With Retribution attacking on Friday and messing with the lights today, could you see their antics spreading to NXT? Um, I mean, they've been very... 
they've been very careful to separate Raw with SmackDown. We get that over overlap, but not with NXT. And I hope it doesn't extend to NXT because I think it's a negative to every program. So I prefer it be on two shows as opposed to three shows. I think you would have had it this past Wednesday, wouldn't you? Like they struck last week. I mean, it was only introduced on on Monday, last Monday, yeah. for for those tapings. NXT was taped last week, so I mean, they, taped last week, like after Raw. It was taped before Raw. Oh, okay. NXT has new tapings this Wednesday. Well, they better have the security cameras up. We'll we'll find out on Wednesday. Yes. Uh, Ben from Vancouver, that was the best Seth has ever looked in this Messiah character. Props to Dominic for taking that beating. Nice to be reminded that being a singles champion means you suck. Good job, Apollo and Bailey. That Bianca-Zelina match was incredibly stiff, but Bianca looked impressive. The Raw Underground stuff still lacks context. Why are these guys competing? What do they get if they win? That first fight was a total mess. Could have used a fight judge. Where's the great Muda up to? What's the great Muda up to? I'll tell you what he's up to. Beating uh, Kaido Kiyomiya. On the Noah card on on Monday. That's what Great Mood is up to. Retribution is extremely lame, and I love how the announcers don't mention anything about what happened on SmackDown for half an hour. So they did mention they have heightened security. They did bring that up. Uh, Who will be swerving at SummerSlam? Ric Flair, Aleister Black, or Dominic? Who will be swerving? I don't expect Ric Flair at SummerSlam. Uh, Black should be there. Um, Or Dominic. You think so? Uh, I don't even know if Alistair Black will be there. He's, he's maybe not. If, if you've got Ray, you don't need Alistair. Yeah. So I don't think Flair will be there either. No, I didn't think Rick. Uh, Rick should be gone from this point forward. Yeah. Right. And I don't like what Dominic's not going to turn. Who's he going to turn on? He's in the match. Yeah. Himself. Whoa. <laughs> They'll never see it coming. <laughs> I shed my identity. <laughs> what? Is that swerving on yourself? Yeah. He reveals <laughs> what the custody was in 2005. <laughs> I'm not a Mysterio. I'm Seth's brother. Oh, man. Wow. Alrighty. That is going to bring an end to Rewind a Raw. So thank you to everybody for tuning in. Tuesday night, it's our Rocky review. As we're going to go back to 1976 and see how Rocky Balboa holds up with 2002 standards uh way enjoy the film uh we will be chatting with all of you then in the meantime the full schedule is up at postwrestling.com and as i always like to say way uh uh take care of yourselves and each other What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.